This one here smells great. Which one? Mmm. Smells like mother's crazy sister Kate. Oh, you think so? Yeah, I do. It smells so good. She couldn't have been that crazy. I don't think so. Oh, you don't think so, huh? No. Well, she put her poodle one time in a microwave oven. To eat it? Yeah. To eat it? Oh, no. No, 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 silly, to dry it. No, 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 But it exploded, and they were both found dead. She must have been out of her head. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lay Film. My name is Kevin, one of the co-hosts, and here with me today are my fellow co-hosts. Tyler. Richie. Patrick. And today we have a very, very special guest of the show, uh, somebody who I have been wanting to have on for quite some time. His name is Ben's Doctolero, and he's a local filmmaker, patron of the arts, and overall one of the most unique people I've ever met. Welcome to the show, Ben's. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, Ben's, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Not really, but um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I I, uh, I think I went to university with uh, a lot of you, maybe all of you. I'm not sure. Um, I met Kevin uh, at one of his films that he was screening, and um, yeah, I've I've run into him at a lot of uh, local things, shows, and um, little underground things. Uh, Shout out to the Red Museum, I guess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's always funny. Like, um, like I'll just, like, I'll be at a random show where there's, like, five other people. And then all of a sudden, I'll, like, look beside me. And then there's Ben's taking photos of, like, a music act. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> But, yeah, it's always, it's always awesome uh, being able to bump into you. And uh, we've known each other since, like, t- almost four years now. And it's really cool that we've been able to like still keep in touch. Um, And I'm hoping that once things revert to like a sense of normalcy, we'll continue bumping into each other at these sorts of uh, weird events. (laughs) Oh yeah, for sure. Hopefully. And um, Ben's outside of filmmaking. uh, uh, I believe that you help out a lot with uh, the local French film festival. Is that right? Yeah, I do. Um, I help out for the uh, short film selection. I uh, help create the program for uh, all the short films that are submitted from uh, the French-speaking world, Haiti, um, Belgium, Canada, uh, Tunisia, Morocco, Algeria, sometimes Vietnam even. Wow. One other reason why I really wanted to have you on here is because you are the most knowledgeable film person I've ever met. Like you just have like a wealth of knowledge when it comes to um, cinema as a whole. And I I think that you do a lot of great work for uh, publications here. Like I know that you do like reviews and stuff um, and also write articles for like local magazines at times. 
Um, and yeah, I'm very excited to hear what you have to say about these two films that we're going to be talking about. And this is the first time that we've actually done this sort of episode where we will be talking about a short film followed by a feature film. And I think that this will be a really cool uh, way to start incorporating short films into the discussion. Oh, yeah. It's um, what we do at the uh, French Film Festival, actually. We pair a uh, short film with a feature film. That's awesome. <laughs> Dude, yeah, that's rad. Wait, so you, this, this French, I don't even know about this, this French Film Festival or Short Film Festival, is, is it in SAC, in Sacramento? Yeah, we're, um, I think we're on our 21st year now. Um, but yeah, it's usually at the Crest. Sometimes it's at the Tower or the IMAX. Um, it's contemporary French cinema and, um, you know, from different, we've, we've, we've screened, we've screened like, uh, Celine Sciamma movies and, um, uh, different directors, like different contemporary French directors and also classic films too. Dude, and, awesome. Oh, yeah. I, I, I gotta check that out next time, uh, there's a screening. And Benz, you have a lot of ties to the crest. Right. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I've been going there as a patron for um, a long time, um, and through the French Film Festival, I've like got to know a lot of the uh, projection team and management over there. And um, yeah, so I uh, am part time over there actually at the moment. And uh, for listeners who don't know, The Crest is a historic movie theater, or basically just venue in Sacramento, where a lot of uh, films get screened there, a lot of music acts get uh, are held there, and it's one of my favorite theaters outside of, of course, the Tower Theater as well. Um, and yeah, like if you're ever in Sacramento, definitely check out either of those two theaters. Um Benz, do you happen to have any sort of film projects that you're working on right now? I have multiple that I really need to like tear down and, and sort of like really work on one. Um, just actually came back from my cinematographer, uh, Nick Boulay's house, and uh, we were testing out um, some new uh, film stock that we that he had laying around for a camera that he just purchased. And um, yeah, hopefully, you know, we'll, it's kind of weird because like, uh, like relearning, you know, like how to load film and like all of that stuff is uh, uh, kind of challenging and like kind of like nerve wracking, but also it's, uh, it's kind of fun too at the same time. The, mechan the, the mechanical nature of like, you know, the, uh, the technical side of film, I guess. Are you uh, working with 16 millimeter? Yes, we hate, uh, we have a bunch of like old 16 millimeter stuff laying around. So we were looking at testing some of that stuff up. Awesome. Um, do you happen to have a, a website or like a location where like listeners can check out some of your previous work? Actually, no, I don't have like a website or anything. I'm kind of like almost never, I've never had one. 
Uh, I'm not sure if I'm against it or not, but like I just don't I'm not really on anywhere. I mean, you can find me on places, but I mean, I don't really not out there kind of like that. Well, I'm pretty yeah, insecure about. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to get stalked or anything, right? Yeah, I'm pretty insecure about um, I don't know, that kind of stuff. So I just you know, people ask, you know, you know, or yeah, I, like something local going on. That's like um a common. I mean, it's interesting that you say that because uh one time I was speaking with another friend who like makes stuff and we often had this discussion of just releasing stuff under like a pseudonym because uh oftentimes like there's like the fear of like being judged by like audiences or uh having or being I don't know just a- any sort of thing like that whereas like if you have like a pseudonym you could just release something. Yeah. And it isn't attached to anything, and Dude. it could just stand on its own. That's so funny. I did that. I literally did that for like photography a few years ago. You did? It's not the same thing. Like the same thing. Like I don't ever want to put out. Like it takes like I have to feel really confident in something to like want to post it or whatever. You know, like any of my work. Like I would say like eighty ninety percent of my work. I've I've pro- I've showed you guys. Sure, like in like person, but like posting it on socials, never. And then I had one time I made this like separate Instagram account, like same thing where it's just like no ties to anybody I know, like completely different name. And it was just a bunch of photos I took. And then one of my best friends sends me a pic, a screenshot of like a post from that Instagram, like totally separate Instagram. And he's like, I found your fucking fake page, you bitch. Like, I was like, how the fuck did you know it's me? Like, what? Um. But yeah, I I totally uh I agree or I feel you on that. Like one of my uh, aliases was a uh, Mad Cat Infinity. So if you ever see like weirdo films that like you know with Mad Cat Infinity, that's probably me. Okay, I'm gonna go stalk. I'm stalking that right now. Yeah, mine so, was called mine was called Peep the Shot, and somehow my buddy found it and. I proceeded to delete the Instagram. <laughs> You're like, I've been found out. <laughs> that uh, that kind of ties in with the one of the themes that I've been picking up from um, these two films that you selected, Ben's. The first one that we'll be talking about in a bit is called Possibly in Michigan. Um, and then the second, uh, which is a feature length, is Imposters. And one of the... I mean, the way that you framed it to me, Ben's, was very interesting because with Possibly in Michigan, it was like a, it was first created in 1993 by Cecilia Condit. And she re uploaded the video in YouTube, I want to say back in like, in like the uh, 2010s. And then it became viral. Um, I want to say like right now, it's sitting at around like over 8 million views, I want to say. And it's it's crazy to think about because you have like this very obscure video from like 19 from the early 1980s that went viral on like TikTok of teenagers and like like 16 year olds like reenacting scenes from this very disturbing horror musical, which is like so accessible, like it's free to watch on YouTube now versus the feature that you picked, which is Imposters, which was made in 1979 by Mark Rappaport, which 
you know, when we tried, like, I mean, I, I couldn't find this film anywhere, um, even on like, uh, indexer sites or anything like that. It was just, it, it was just so difficult to find. And, um, the way that, uh, you know, us talking about, you know, recent releasing stuff or being, uh, not having or not releasing things due to, um, own personal reasons and stuff, you know, if there was a way to detach like these sorts of things from like identities and have them just stand on their own and have like the talent drive them, drive their exposure to it, it ends up being on like this weird balancing act of becoming viral versus being so obscure that it's just entirely inaccessible and becomes wiped out from history almost. So I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on like the, uh, on the relation between these two for you. Oh yeah. I was, I had first seen imposters, the film that's like really, really hard to find uh, several years back while I was working um, at a streaming company, which I will not name, um, but they had a copy for a while. They don't anymore. And um that's it's just it took a while to find this film. I remember really liking it and I wanted to revisit it again um to see how I would react to it um years later and um I I kind of liked the idea of making a film that there's that went viral there's like a lot of people kind of like in on it and like contributing to it now versus a film that has literally barely any like it's not studied in in any film class or it has like like if you google it there's not that much stuff on it um so when we talk about it we're kind of like setting the groundwork for you know this film uh, legacy um and like when people try to research this film, hopefully they'll come across this podcast. Who knows? Yeah, I yeah. was literally thinking. Oh, my bad. My oh bad. no, no, go for it, Ty. Go for it. No, I was thinking that though. Um, after watching it, I was I like just quickly like wanted to like you know Google a review or you know see just like some a couple other people's thoughts on it. And it's like literally, there's nothing. There's like not a there's nothing out there. There's, I think I found like one review from on like IMBD or, or IMDB and uh but uh, then that thought came to my head I was like okay like this is sick like literally like when now when after we do this when people google this or you know try and research this like our pod could be one of the first things that comes up so I think yeah, it's I like Tyler. it I'm saying uh, like Tyler you didn't stumble stumble upon someone's secret review right from this group was that you, Richie? <laughs> I was thinking, was that Ben's? <laughs> oh, no. No, I don't have any literature on this. Um, but, yeah, I thought it's like, I wanted to pick something that was also difficult to talk about. like Kind of like hard to, um, you know, digest. And um, everything that we, we, we talk about, like, in relation to this movie will be, like, pretty original, I guess. There's nothing we could read up on it. So. Yeah, that too. Now that like I couldn't, I couldn't find a review to maybe shape or help me think on what I want to talk about the movie. Which sometimes, you know, I see something, I see a cool like thought that somebody said, 
about a certain movie and I'm like, oh yeah, like I agree with that after watching it. So I'm going to mention that. Now it's just like straight up. Everyone's coming from, you know, coming from the heart. Yeah, I, I think it's, um, I think it's a very important service that whether it's like you're reviewing something or you're just sharing art with another person, I think that that sort of thing is incredibly important to the sustainment of art as a whole. And it brings up like the, the constant uh, debate of piracy as a form of uh, historical uh, archiving. And because like, ha like I know that for a lot of uh, movies that I've seen that are incredibly like difficult to find, I never would have been able to see them if it hadn't been for piracy. And I, I, there's like so many arguments to be made about that are for and against it. And it's, it's kind of like a give and take, like it's a very ambivalent, um, kind of like necessary evil, but also not evil in a way. Um, when it's used strictly to preserve something and make it available, you know, versus it being completely unavailable. Like it, it's kind of like, um, this is kind of vaguely related, but like, for instance, with, uh, in video game, uh, news and stuff, Nintendo recently stopped allowing purchases for a lot of their older games on uh, the virtual console for the Wii U as well as the 3DS. So now a lot of those titles that are that were once available and accessible from like, you know, Super Nintendo all the way up, um, they're no longer available through legal means unless you go back and purchase the old cartridges on like eBay for a very wild price. Or if you have like the degradation of the of the consoles as well as like the equipment like that's also a factor as well um and that that same thing could be applied to anything as well whether it's like old school keyboards that degrade over time or uh vhs copies that never got like a re-release on dvd or something like that and i don't know i feel like we've had this discussion before about piracy and it just seems like it's always it's always a part of the discussion when it comes to, you know, watching a lot of obscure movies that aren't readily available on streaming sites. Yeah. Um, speaking of video games and how like hard it is to obtain the older um, classics like Nintendo classics, um, there is a game called, uh, Oh, it's called 50 Cent uh, Blood in the Sand. Uh, I think it came out like 12 or 13 years ago. It's like over $200 now. Are you serious? I, I remember that game. Yeah. Yeah, that's just Yo. wild to me. So what I'm thinking as a future crime business, uh, we could become like mob mobsters for like canceled or discontinued media and then we and then we sell that to our customer as like and that that's our that's you know that's like our drugs we're but we're pushing like old nintendo games and you know imposters shit like that i'm on board if i get a copy of rule of rose 
which I think last time I looked goes for 500 and it was a obscure Japanese PS2 game only released in Europe. I think it won a film festival for its animated aspects or a short animated short. But yeah, you can't buy it anywhere. You can't access it. I want JFK's brain. <laughs> you want that photo of the autopsy? <laughs> that would be pretty wild. Like, um, someone stumbles across it and you just have, like, you know, former president autopsy photo. Imagine explaining that to someone. Imagine the CIA <laughs> knocking on the door. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's also uh, that new show that just come out uh, had just come out, uh, Pam and Tommy's uh, TV series or something on Hulu about how these guys stole their like sex tape and sh- and tried to sell it off. I don't know if you guys heard of these this new Hulu series. Yeah, I I think I heard about that. It, it um I I haven't seen any of it, but it reminds me of like the uh kind of like this trend that i mean it happened like a few years ago with like um, uh recreations of like historical events and stuff where of for instance um i think it was the person who was attached to american horror story like they were doing like the uh trial of like oj simpson and then they moved on to like a few other like historical uh reenactment mm-hmm. dramatic versace. series oh yeah the versace one mm-hmm is is it kind of similar to that? Uh, I think so. I mean, uh, I haven't seen it, so I can't really comment further on that. But I brought it up because it is another like form of piracy in a way, where someone like stole this tape, you know, probably tried to make mm-hmm. copies or just make a bunch of money off of it, you know. So I, I, I think, like- yeah. No, you bring up a really good point, like especially with the intent behind piracy like when it comes to distributing it whether it's for because it seems like for that that was like strictly financial intent of like banking on somebody else's content um also like maintaining like a sense of anonymity with it possibly and yeah i feel like with it, it like with everything it's all it all depends on the intent behind it. And I feel like if you're trying to preserve like a piece of art, I don't know if like that sex tape could be considered art or not, but like, I feel like, um, when it comes to like art and like historical stuff, I feel like piracy can be used for a very benevolent means. Amen. You can say as soon as you pull out a camera and you start recording, I mean, everything's art, man. (laughs) um uh i I feel like this is a a good portion to like segue into like stuff that we've been watching recently like what what have you all been watching as of late um i just started back on watching spawn the uh animated hbo series um yeah, it's really good. I'm glad I got back into it. The only reason why I even stopped was because it was too um it was too dark. But 
it's still very entertaining. There isn't really an animated series like this. I like the like the noir, um, like the meshing of noir and horror and psychological and just like I love the framing of like several shots in this series. And um yeah, I just been watching that. And I just finished Yellow Jackets. So um I highly recommend that show. It just had one season. Season two is gonna come out later this year. Uh yeah, I hate that people are kinda coining it as like the female Lord of the Flies when it's not like that at all. Um I think it's a good uh mashup of like Maybe even like the Blair Witch Project and like Lost as like a survival series, which is really cool. So, uh, yeah, I think that's what I've been watching so far. Uh, Benz, uh, what have you been watching? I last saw The Lost Daughter, Maggie Gyllenhaal's um, film. Um, which is kind of a a good pairing with another film I saw a couple of days ago, Sundown. Um, kind of very similar um, stories, but different uh, different way that it's distilled, I guess. Um, yeah, it's the last thing I saw. I'll start it. What about you? Uh, oh, I was going to say, what about you, Pat? <laughs> uh... I recently stumbled across some copies of uh, like the piracy discussion. I finally found a copy of Avalon by Mamoroshi, which I did pay to have a disc like from Italy get sent to me only for it not to work even on my oh, computer. No. Yeah, I tried to download drivers, but I, I'm not smart enough to solve that. So I got Avalon and the T as well as a space runaway Ideon, which is an anime from the 80s that I've seen clips from, but I stumbled across it with people making comparisons where it's the creator of Gundam after his first series, which is Gundam, was a financial success, but they uh, altered his message to sell toys and action figures. So a studio took a chance with him right after that. And he's like, I'm going to make my own anti-war space science fiction opera. And uh, apparently it's like a direct inspiration for Evangelion. And it's like a like half transcendental horror space opera. That's supposed to be very powerful. I'm, I'm eager to start that tonight. I'll be uh, reaching out to you, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> are you gonna pay him handsomely for those oh yeah copies? i'm gonna i'm gonna have i'm gonna give him a check to send to the people that he got these items from yes what about you tyler what have you what have you been checking out lately um well i i know i've been the last few episodes i'd mentioned secession i finally finished that i think i already touched on that before but um I wa uh, I really haven't been watching much, honestly. Like, I watched um, Boba Fett or whatever on Disney. That was cool. I don't know if any of you guys watched that. It, it was weird. It's funny. They kind of turned it like from like into a Boba Fett show, 
or like it was, you know, it's Boba Fett. The show's called Boba Fett. And then like by like episode five, they literally the like next three episodes to end the season were pretty much Mandalorian episodes. Really? <laughs> so funny. Like it's like the I was thinking too, I was like, God, the Boba Fett show is like it's just cool. It's okay, whatever. Like it's Star Wars, sure, Wait. I'll watch it. Are they winging it? Like I think it's more so like I fucked with it because like once they brought okay so like the Boba Fett shit was okay and then once they brought in like Mandalorian just made it all Mandalorian episodes it was like so much better. Did they legitimately? Did they bring in the Mandalorian? Yeah, like they literally, they literally. Well, uh, well, so like the Mandalorian and Boba Fett storylines like interline, like they literally like meet together like in the Mandalorian show too. So it like kind of makes sense, but they literally turned it into like. Two straight episodes, Boba Fett probably had, like episodes five and six, Boba Fett had probably two lines in two episodes. Like, barely even. <laughs> so it's just funny. They, I wonder if they were, like, they kind of audibled and were like, okay, like, no one's really fucking with the show. Let's just throw in a little Mando two, season two and a half just to keep people happy until whatever else they release. But then also... I've been watching uh, Righteous Ge- Righteous Gemstones on HBO too, with uh, Danny McBride. I don't think any of you guys watched that show either, huh? Mm-hmm. That's a yeah. It's pretty funny. It's like they run like a church conglomerate, and it's just super like boisterous, over the top Danny McBride comedy. I um. I that one's been on my list for a while now. And uh along with uh I'm glad that Richie you brought up Spawn because I remember when I first got access to HBO Go, I saw that in like one of the thumbnails and my inner fourth grade self was like, "Oh my god, like this is like my dream come true." Like when um when I was in elementary school, I had like a huge fascination with Spawn. Like I watched the movie, the I think it was Spawn Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like a video game that came out on like Xbox. And I remember seeing the commercials to that and, you know, waiting in anticipation for it, like asking for it for like Christmas and stuff. And I would just draw Spawn everywhere like whether it was like on like homework assignments on like uh my ssr reading journal um i would just draw spawn <laughs> all the time are you, are you jonah hill's <laughs> character in super bad yeah ex- except i drop, just drew spawn everywhere <laughs> you drop like your illustration on the ground and you're like shamed yeah <laughs> but like i um i went into a local comic book store here um and I came across a spawn, like the complete like spawn uh collection. And it took everything in my like will to like not buy it right then and there. <laughs> but I'm glad that you reminded me of the show because now I can like scratch that itch. Um I don't oh, know yeah, what do it, it. I don't know what it is about spawn that's like always like drawn me into it, but I haven't like seen any of it since I was in elementary school. And I feel like once I watch the show, I'll hopefully like find uh, out why why it is that I like Spawn so much. It's <laughs> the voice, the voice acting by uh, Keith David as Spawn is so good. Like he is Spawn. Um, 
Yeah. Like, I think you would love the show, uh, Kevin. And it's really short as well. Like, I think each season's only like maybe four to six episodes. Mm-hmm. So it's criminally underrated. Like, not much has even been said about this series. Um, and I don't think HBO even does animated series, if at all anymore. I'm not even sure. But yeah, I think you will like it, Kevin. I'm I'm really excited to check it out. Um, aside from Spawn, uh, some stuff that I've watched recently. One movie is called The Night Doctor by Ellie Weishman, which was made in 2020. And it's about, uh, this is the synopsis for it. It's, uh, Michaela's a doctor on a night call. It's a vocation. Between two patient visits in the slum areas, he cares for those whom no one else wants to see. The drug addicts, the homeless. He rubs shoulders with destitution. Life is in shambles. And it's a really unique, like, tragedy and, like, deep dive into, like, the underworld of, uh, providing, uh, drug addicts with, um, with narcotics or basically like medicine that helps them prevent o- prevent uh, from overdosing. And it was kind of like the, uh, the opposite of like, for instance, like uh, midnight or uh, midnight cowboy or, um, or not even that um, drugstore cowboy. That's what I meant. Um, as well as like a few other movies. And then uh, the latest movie that I saw was, uh, the worst person in the world. I saw that in theaters. Oh, I wanted to watch that. Yeah, it's it's. I I really enjoyed it. It was like, I haven't been into a movie theater in a very very long time, and it's directed by Joachim Trier, and it just came out. And for anyone who likes um sort of like whimsical but also, uh, realistic uh introspective journeys uh across like a long or across like i want to say like a decade or probably even less than that of uh of just someone's life and seeing how all their choices lead to where they are now i highly highly recommend it um yeah like nobody was in the theater and it was awesome i loved that like i didn't i wasn't like disturbed (laughs) by anyone and uh hopefully this weekend i'm gonna see drive my car oh i want to see that movie yeah i think it's coming to tower oh really oh, i'm gonna go check it out yeah i might check it out saturday yeah um those two movies kevin that you brought up drive my car and the worst person in the world got nominated for uh, academy awards so we have that to look forward to <laughs> Isn't it crazy that all these movies that get nominated for Academy Awards, they're like you have to go to you have to go to a place like The Crest or Tower where they like specialize in playing these movies, whereas if you go to like any Cinemark Regal place, they're not gonna play it. At least out here. I don't know how it works everywhere else. Yeah, I, I imagine it's a tough sale to um, yeah. get people to see these movies. She's like Kevin said, there's he was like the only person uh, for the screening of the worst person in the world. So yeah, I don't think very many people are trying to see those movies. Wait, Kevin, you were literally the only person in the theater. Oh no, it was, it was me. And like, I want to say four to five oh. old couples. Yeah, it's <laughs> okay. yeah. Like el- elderly that people typical. that show up. I know, yeah, right? The tower it's theater. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> 
There were like maybe like twenty people in my screening for only uh, the worst person in the world. What What do you think of it, Benz? Um, I liked it a lot. Um, I haven't seen any of Joachim Pryor's like previous works. This might be his debut, actually. I'm not sure. Um, no, actually, he has movies. He has Belmont, I think. He directed that one. Um, but I thought the performances were like uh, fantastic, and um, they all kind of this thing were like you, like pulling at you, like you know, uh, for your attention. All the characters and um, what I like about it is that they kind of live their life on this this line of uh, um, you know, fulfilling their own desires, however like wrong we may might think it is or you know it kind of like lives on that line of um you know what's so okay in uh relationships there's that actually i think a whole chapter called cheating and it's like about not cheating like what is considered not cheating and i think that that was a was a hilarious uh chapter on it yeah, the, the whole movie is comprised of uh, 12 chapters with a prologue and an epilogue of the central character as they're sort of navigating from profession to profession to relationship to relationship. And there's so many... I mean, it, it took me a while during the movie to get used to the tone of the of the story itself. And it felt very uh had a a lot of uh magical realism elements to it while also staying very grounded it reminded me a lot of eric romer's work where it's it's kind of like just meandering down like a river uh you know going through a person's you know going through a, a period of a person's life um and you get to see all of the the weight that is placed on the characters as they sort of, you know, break up, get together and you see the emotional toll that it wreaks on them. And I think that the overall development of the main character in it is just one of the most, it was one of the most profound things that I've seen in, uh, in a movie of like within the past like year or two. And I had a like it made me take a glare like a very unflinching look at my own life and the decisions that I've made. And because like when you come face to face with that sort of stuff and, you know, as opposed to just letting it, you know, take you from moment to moment, it it, it just stacks up to the point where you're like, oh, I haven't like looked at this in a while. And then you come to the end of like a, you know, a marker where it marks out like how far you've come since the last time you checked in. And I don't know. It was just a very, it was a very profound movie and I highly recommend it to anyone who's been wanting to, you know, check out a movie in theaters. Um, but with that said, let's, shall we talk about possibly in Michigan? Um, I'll give a brief synopsis of the movie. Uh, once again, it was made in 1983 by director Cecilia Condit. And the synopsis is a musical horror story about two young women who are stalked through a shopping mall 
by the cannibal Arthur. He follows them home, and here the victims become the aggressor. It's a 12 to 14 minute short, and it's available on YouTube for anyone to watch. Um, but with that said, what were your initial impressions of this short film? Um, you, you know me and my hate for horror. Just kidding. I wouldn't even call this movie a horror, but I was like, I feel like within the first 45 seconds of watching this, my jaw had already dropped. <laughs> which uh, uh, I think is a hard feat to accomplish in any piece of filmmaking. Um, but I don't know. I feel like I, I watched it today. So I feel, like, I feel like this is something that you need, like or not need to. I don't know. Who knows? But I feel like I want to watch it a few times more before I like... I, I watched it twice, but I, I want to watch it a few more times to really get my thoughts on it, but... <laughs> Uh, Kevin, I told you earlier of what, uh, this seems like the type of film I want to watch, like, in a certain mindset. Under know? mushrooms? <laughs> no. Shrooms? Maybe. A DMT? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, that is the answer. <laughs> but no, uh, it was just, uh, it was really entertaining and just super unique and yes that thought came to my head i was like this seems like an acid trip of a uh, short film but then there's so much more there's just so much more and i i i'm interested i'm curious to see what your guys' thoughts are because i know it's just going to spark a bunch of stuff in my brain too yeah i really like this film a lot tyler um it is one of those horror shorts that like you do want to watch it again because there's so much that's going on. Like there's, uh, there's so much, uh, imagery that f flies by you that you like kind of want to rewind and, and see that again. And you're like, wow, did that really just happen? And, uh, well, it's not even the imagery too. It's like the sound, the voices, yeah, music, everything. It has such a, charming beat to it even though it has these horror elements yeah uh, i found myself way too comfortable for watching something so <laughs> like unnerving and creepy right i i think that cecilia called it she, i think she did a great job of meshing these genres up the like almost like a slasher with like a musical but with like almost like a friendship or romantic comedy esque, uh, yeah, it's. I thought it was done really well. It really, I thought the movie had come out three years ago or something, and then it was just portrayed as something that took place in the eighties. But I was completely wrong. I was like, wow, this film still works today in my opinion. And uh, when, I, when I watched it a couple of days ago, uh, I stumbled upon an article about a woman that really did get stalked at night. And this person followed her into her apartment 
and like murdered her. And that made me really upset because I'm just like, I just watched this really, really good short. And then following that, I just read about this news that happened to this poor young woman. And I'm just like, man, I think Cecilia called it, you know, she was trying to hit something. She was trying to hit a nerve about these social issues, you know, especially like these women that do get stalked. And, you know, I'm sure we have, we know people or we have friends that that has happened to, you know, where we get like unsolicited uh, following by somebody. And yeah, I think these things need to be taken more seriously because um, I mean, I definitely had a friend who had to deal with that kind of stuff. And, you know, those things were always kind of batted off as, oh, it's not a big deal. Like it doesn't hurt anybody. They're not hurting anyone, but you never know. Right. So that's my impressions of it. Uh, I really like the, uh, it's hard to not talk about, but the, uh, the eighties is so ripe in, uh, this film as well as the second one, which was one of the takeaways I had from, uh, imposter. It's like weird. And it's like the transition between like late mid seventies to like kind of eighties. But yeah, this one that starts in the mall, I believe they go around to different stores when they're like remini- or talking about the news or the the killings like the woman who i think microwaved her dog and then they they uh they walk through the reasoning and then it's like a grim joke about oh she was just trying to dry it off and it's like a <laughs> no it's no 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 <laughs> yeah there's like a musical angle to it <laughs> and uh but then yeah it's like it's 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 uh it's like playing with the not playing with the idea but it's like it's, it's like a window into like these people who do these things like maybe there's not an inherent maliciousness in it it's like oh it could just be like neuroatypical undiagnosed and then uh yeah and then as well as the the lurking figure with the mask is clearly like my first interpretation was like oh is this like the sociopathic angles of the two main characters we're seeing manifest the way it's always looming in the background or is it the looming threat of you know just inherent human violence and then uh yeah and then there's the final confrontation but i just wanted to remark on the 80s aspects i loved when uh kevin you said it had a recent blow up in like a tiktok surge that like made my stomach upset <laughs> that made me uh that made me uh reflect Wait, why did on- that make you upset pat because it feels like it feels like we're like going through like a like a, a repetition of history where we're we're in the new fiat neo neo fiat where uh yeah it's it's yeah we kind of had like a reaganish even though it's like a shallow disgusting like we can't even have a real reagan anymore very recently we had a president similar i would say and yeah, we're just getting like a new fiat currency, which is like crypto this, crypto that, NFT. There's no backing to any material wealth. It's just new concepts of wealth to divide. And yeah, so when it's like, oh, it's on TikTok too. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> just, <laughs> I'm happy for the artists. And I love the, this feels like it's a critique of the, that era. And then the fact that a surge in popularity in this era, it's one of those things where like, is it? Is it a result of like 
I don't think we're becoming aware of that era's prevalence today or like the, you know, the repeating history of it. It may just be because of the symbols inside it that remind him of the 80s that we desire to return to. And yeah, that's just, I'm just rambling. And then I, I looked up the Dahmer. I had to look up Jeffrey Dahmer info to see like, oh, is this in response to that? And like, no, that was like in the 90s. So this is uh... ahead of its time. Yeah, or it's uh, maybe there's, I know there was a serial killer surge, I think, in the 80s, but this is still pretty early for the 80s. Like, I don't know when Casey was yeah. apprehended. Yeah, because I, I did uh, hear about how Cecilia Condit did date someone who turned out to be a killer, or he was coined like the unicorn killer, and he like fled the country and whatnot. So, like, that was some pretty gnarly, like, story that actually like is true and i don't know if this film was the film that she was inspired by but um yeah that was really intriguing to hear about and pretty horrifying yeah i um there there's so many like great points that you all like touched upon when it comes to this this short film and i'm really glad that you recommended this ben's um the first thing that stood out to me was the hyper consumerist culture um, that, it, you know, starting off in like this in the mall of like the height of the of the super mall in the 80s. And uh, Richie, you, you mentioned that it felt like it, this movie was made like a few years ago. I felt that exact same way. I thought that this was like one of those deep into YouTube videos where it's just so obscure that, you know, you spend like four hours on YouTube and then you somehow end up in like the furthest recesses of it. And, and it felt like, it, you know, it, and I, I felt like it may have been like even an offshoot of like Adult Swim, like infomercials, um, too many cooks in the ki kitchen, that type of stuff. But then afterwards, when I, when I looked at the year in the description, I'm like, no way. This was made in 1983. That is absolutely insane because I because all these things that I'm referencing were were not even made anywhere close to that time. So it makes me it made me like appreciate this this film all the more so because it feels like like the entire time that I felt watching it, I felt like I was an outsider looking in. Like it felt hyper real to the sense in a sense where like this exact this exact interpretation or um, display of events could be seen as sensical in like some sort of. I don't know, it, in like some sort of like weird fantasy world or something like that, and like I was an alien watching it. And I just immediately felt like an outsider in my own skin watching this movie. And it creeped me out to no end. Like, <laughs> I, um, I felt like somebody was watching me while I was, while I was watching this. It felt like, um, uh, like <laughs> when I was younger and I saw, uh, commercials for The Ring coming out, like where, if, you know, oh, there's this videotape that's getting passed around. If you watch it, you die in like seven days. Like it felt like one of those like chain mail things, but in the form of a video. And <laughs> I was a uh, 
before I before I put it on, I was like gonna take my trash cans out and stuff, and I I live in I live in I know I I live in kind of like a in. Like you said I didn't want to take my trash cans out. Yeah, well I well I I live in like an urban area, and the way that I take my trash cans out, I have to go outside of my house into like this weird like little side street, and I'm like, oh, I have time. Like it's only like. I thought it was like five or something, like when it was like getting to be like sunset. And then I look at the clock and it's like 630. And then I, I'm like, oh, no. And then I look outside and it's like complete pitch. You know, it's like dark out. And, and I'm like going down the, the fucking alleyway and I'm like just freaking out the entire time, like taking my trash cans out, thinking that like somebody like I go out there and there's going to be like somebody standing out like all the way down the alleyway, like watching me. And then, um. As I like come back, I see like the little gate that I kind of wedged open is like pushed open even more. So I felt like I had to like go inside my house and like go into every nook and cranny to make sure that like nobody was here. And like it freaked me the fuck out. And I with that said, though, I loved everything about this short film. Like I. I, I feel like the entire experience of it and the symbolism and the editing and everything it creates like this unique visual language as well as sonic language that it encases like a very simple message but also interweaves it with like so many different conflicting and ambivalent themes of uh the pursuer becoming or the become becoming the pursued as well as uh absurdity in the face of overwhelming violence and brutality and like everything about it, like where the, the repetitious aspects of it freaked me out the most. Um, when it gets to, when I see like repetition, uh, one other, you know, it reminded me of, um, in the latest season of twin peaks, uh, the return, there's a sequence where editing is played with where time just feels so otherworldly where it goes forward a few steps and goes backwards and then it gets intercut with like almost like you're blinking but moving forward but backwards and then you open your eyes and then you see that you've moved but also like it doesn't feel real um like the dialogue of these two women just so nonchalantly discussing uh you know the poodle being placed in the microwave while this these ominous figures are like following that and my you know after the fact view when it comes to like piecing together the, the narrative it feels like a reflection on grief and trauma in a way um it feels like almost it feels like um the main character is having like a sort of reactive PTSD episode. And this short film is the amalgamation of that. Like to me, this feels hyper real in the sense of experiencing the emotions that come with that type of episode. And with these pieces of art, I feel like they're so valuable and so few and far between that I get to engage with them that when I do, I end up treasuring them and they end up being like one of my favorite pieces of like media that I like go back to as a form of like, as like a visual, as like an internal totem in a way. 
Um, and when, like, Pat, how you were saying, like, you were disgusted with the resurgence in, like, TikTok and stuff. Like, I was I was going through the reviews on Letterboxd because, uh, like, Tyler, how you mentioned, um, like, there's just some thoughts that you come across and you're like, oh, yeah, like, that's that'd be interesting to, like, talk about. I saw some people were were like mocking people who were saying that they were disturbed by how popular it was becoming and like the the nonchalant aspect of um of people like really engaging with it and viewing it as like this like funny piece of content as well as something to be admirable of of like oh you have like these two feminist icons like devouring their pursuer it's like no, like you shouldn't be admiring this type of stuff. Like they were driven to that, you know? And I just think it's absolutely like I, it, it doesn't. I agree, Pat. Like it makes my stomach turn over when I think of like these young or not even young people, but like anyone recreating like these sorts of events purely for indulgent purposes. It, I feel like they don't get the jit. I mean, Maybe they do, but maybe they don't. It just seems like a disconnect between the original or what I perceive to be the the original intent of this piece, which is a reflection on like the horror of like being pursued as a vulnerable person versus uh, engaging with something purely for edgy purposes or for any other sort of like nefarious or self-indulgent reason. And uh, with that said, Benz, I want to hear more about, like, first, why or your reasoning for picking this piece, as well as your own sentiments towards your initial impressions of it. Yeah, the the more that I watch this um, short film, I, I go back to it, like, eat regularly, actually. Um, and uh, I always get something different from it because there are moments where it is quite hilarious in the in the short film as well as like horrific um and weird but like you know there's in in one part of the film there's like uh love shouldn't cost an arm or a leg and then like yep. 10 seconds later they talk it's like a, the male character talking about or the seventh person basically and you know the 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 Sharon is asking how many have there been others there's six and it's very eerie in that way that it could switch like really fast from like something that's like hilarious like downright hilarious to like something that's like whoa that's kind of almost too real and um it is it's more strange the more that you you read it like you research about like filmmaker and like the background behind the film how she dated a man that was um serial killer <laughs> and um yeah so it's it's and in in this time too it's, i think someone mentioned that there was a surge of like serial killers in the 80s the the whole panic thing and it kind of runs in conjunction with the uh, satanic panic of the 80s and um when i was looking up because like you know once you like see something like this you're like oh i kind of want to know like everything about it almost well that's how it is with me in a ways and i the only thing that i could find about it was um back in the uh 
90s, I think, the 700 Club. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but it's like this Christian uh, television program. Um, not sure what channel it was on, but they, they talked about this this film and how it was like satanic. And um, it's, it's interesting that like, uh, you know, like depending on your background, like how you take certain media, like something this short into like, you know, something that's like, oh, this is very satanic or this is something that's like quite comedic or disturbing. Um, yeah, this they were talking about how. Um, uh, the film was like satanic and it got money from the uh, this this film was like kind of funded by um, the uh, Ohio Arts Commission or something like that. It's, it says in the credits. But I always thought that's um, that was interesting that like we used to have uh funding available for like these kind of projects which um how do you even pitch that you know get money interesting sure that church tv speaker fought tooth and nail to remove that option too for the future so like do we still have art projects outreach like that yeah um the national endowment of the arts i think is a uh, one of the uh, funders for this project in the Ohio Arts Commission. Um, but another interesting thing is that um, I she has, Cecilia Condi, she has like a lot of films available on YouTube. This is the only one that really popped off and um, people are, you know, are really into it. But she has other films that, that are kind of um, in line with this film and kind of will inform uh, how you read this film if you watch like her other projects it has like similar same cast it's also in her other films she's still making films to this day even um i think her last thing that i saw was 2020 uh all short films very um prolific career she actually started uh she went to a school with a uh, david lynch actually um we're in this like same classes in in Philadelphia when he was wow. doing like Eraserhead and things like that. Oh yeah. I heard that. Um, or what she's a professor, right? I, I thought I heard also that he took a class under her or something, or maybe I'm, I, maybe I uh, misheard. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm not really sure what the, um, what the, uh, exact details are, but, um, they were, they crossed paths when he was in Philadelphia. Uh, Eraserhead right. was his, uh, was his experiences in in Philadelphia, and uh, that's where she comes from. Yeah, I'm sure it's annoying her, or maybe it's kind of like a bad kind of compliment when people say like, "Oh, she's a female David Lynch." Oh yeah, yeah, or like it's Lynchian. So Lynchian. <laughs> it's like <laughs> they came from the same scene, or like you know, <laughs> right? It's not like David Lynch curated this scene, you know. I think yeah. <laughs> it's just popularized it, you know. Yeah, it uh Benji mentioned that she is still continuing to make films. Um I watched two of her more recent ones, one called I've Been Afraid, which was about it was kind of an exploration of why women stay in abusive relationships. 
And it was basically the filmmaker going through nature as well as interacting with a semi-Alexa-type unit, um, basically exploring consciousness as a whole. Oh, no, that was a AI, AI and I. That was 2021. And then I've Been Afraid was in 2020. Um, yeah, and I think it's so awesome that she makes all of her make makes or has such a wide variety of work that is uh available on youtube of all things i to me i i feel like that's how art should be in terms of um you know whether it's cinema or any sort of content i feel like if only there was like a way for artists to be funded that way they didn't have to monetize art because i feel like that is just so that goes against what art is, you know, art should be accessible to anyone and everyone. And, uh, when it isn't, that's when you face things like piracy and that's when you face like censorship and anything like that. So I, I, I feel like she's become one of my newfound heroes, even though I just found out about her like a few days ago. Um, but I'm going to try and go through her entire catalog and watch all those all these things because you know in the reviews like you know it's been mentioned with uh the comparison of her and david lynch of you know calling her work lynchian and it's like okay not everything that's like avant-garde or like surrealist or even absurdist has to be you know it, it doesn't have to carry his name with it because even he borrows so many different things from like bergman and like all these other different filmmakers it's just an it's you know, as with any artist, it's an amalgamation of like all and their messages and what their own beliefs that they hold on to. Um, but uh, shall we give our ratings for this and then we can move on to like some of the more details going into this film? Let's do it. All right, I'm going to. I'm going to give it a five out of five purely for the fact that this you could you could feel its influences even to this day. Like it it feels like it could be it could have been made yesterday and still be just as relevant as it was back then. Um, I feel like Adult Swim would not be what it is without this movie, whether they <laughs> intentionally know that or not. Um <laughs> Uh, even a lot of like absurdist content, you know, nowadays it like it just feels like an offshoot of this. And I, you know, whether uh, Cecilia Condi like aspired to like do this sort of thing or not, I feel like she created waves with this piece back then. And even now, uh, even in terms of like juxtaposition of like, all these dizzying camera effects and uh you know repetitious uh sequences of like people repeating the same sentence over and over again and in order to make it all the more uncanny and just the oversaturation of uh the 80s aesthetics to like a point where it's like disgusting and it feels like an isolated incident but also you know the fact that you know in the lyrics it's like oh did this happen like oh somewhere possibly in michigan like 
this sort of thing could have happened anywhere. Um, like it feels like it it's it exists in an alternate reality, but somehow got transported to us through through Cecilia's mind. <laughs> yeah, and, speaking of like alternate realities, um, I think there was even a, a like a portion of the film that was like it's it's not it's a how do I put this? It's like a recording of a TV screen. Did you guys catch that? Yeah, yeah. Like it it, it definitely had that um uh, that's that's why I feel like I felt like so that much of an outsider feel. watching it. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, it it adds more to the the whole um kind of uh it's like a dreamlike effect, but at the same time, it's like it it it's a distancing effect. Like watching a, a, a film in black and white is a distancing effect. It's like oh, this is not reality. You kind of notice something's off about it, but you like you really have to like really pay attention to it. Yeah, and. I feel like that added element of it just creates even more of a strange link between like our own reality and like what we perceive to be like cinema as a whole. And I feel like just for the just for the sheer like uniqueness of it, I I got to give it a 5 out of 5. Um but yeah, that's just my thoughts. Well, for me, I will give this one a five out of five as well. Um, I really had no idea what I was getting when um, when Ben selected this for one of our films. And so I went in purely cold, which is like the best thing to do when you watch um, something uh, viral like this over like five million views, which is crazy. Um, the fact that so many people had watched it, that kind of blows my mind because like what we've been saying, um, it is, uh, experimental. It has like a, it has a avant-garde and like a video art, like quality to it. And, um, I, I like the, the fact that Cecilia has her, uh, She's an auteur. <laughs> we get to see like her fully express herself with this film. And I like how creative and funny and imaginative it is. And even like horrifying, like it has some macabre imagery. It's uh, one of my favorite images is like a, a woman's face melding. It's almost like it's being melded with like a canvas or something or like a painting. Um, so like I always, I was catching myself like wondering how did, she, how did they make this? Like, how did they make these, all these sequences and how are they able to put it all together? Um, what was like the blueprint behind it? Um, so yeah, when I, when I catch myself wondering that it just, you already know, like this is so well crafted. Like it's, yeah, I think it's, very masterful in a way that like you'd want to return to it again and watch it. And yeah, it's, 
I, I like that I got a good laugh out of it too. And yeah, for something that's so dark, it's still kind of upbeat in a way. And yeah, I, I like that. It's very charming and it's something that I definitely needed to watch. And yep, that sums up my thoughts. You know, the interesting thing is, um, I think I read somewhere that, um, I think you're talking about when, um, it's like that superimposition of, uh, Sharon and, uh, I think it's mummies, like actual dead bodies or something. Really? Uh, photographs of mummies, I think is what oh. I read. Well, it's even creepier, but, yeah, but it it, awesome, even more awesome. <laughs> it fits so perfectly when they like superimpose it. It's like, whoa, it's like the shape and everything. Like it kind of matches. Um, I would give, I would give it a, you know, like for me personally, I feel like I'd give it a four out of five, like watching it just because I'm like, what is going on here? And, but you know, I, I feel like you, this is what I do, boys. I, I turn it from a four to a four out of five to a five out of five and I'm going to give it a five out of five. That's my final score because right. Cause Tyler, reason, if you gave it a four, it means it sucks. Tyler bump. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a little bump. No, my re I actually really would have given it a five out of five though, just because I feel like when I watched this, I was, I just kept thinking like I want to show this to people, like uh, like just to experience with other people, experience it with other people. Uh, like it's just so jarring and like just puts you on edge. It's unnerving and. Like you said, Kevin, like, I feel like it really is like it, like, it feels like I'm watching like a 10 minute adult swim, 15 second, like interlude commercial, you know, and then you just end up getting, you get caught in this world. Um, but yeah, like, uh, I did enjoy like the overlays of, uh, the, uh, crap, I forget. Did we ever get her name? But like the overlays between Sharon, I think her name Sharon. Sharon, Sharon? yeah, Sharon, uh, of her like with like the mummy looking zombie, and then and then it kept like uh, coinciding with the shots of her with like the flowers in her hair, and it was like the pure side, and then like the dark side, and I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. Like, and it was weird because I feel like when you see the almost like the killer side of her, I guess, like where you see the the dead, whatever. I don't even know what you want to call it. Like it looked like a mummy to me, like the overlay of her sleeping with the mummy kind of like the lower opacity behind it. Uh, like I noticed it like every, it, you would see that every time like the man came around. So it's just like, is it is it man that is making her <laughs> go to these lengths? Or I don't know, it's just, it brings up an interesting conversation of like the male female dynamic and the things that women have to go through. And I don't know, I just feel like there's so many things that this film can bring up in conversation that it makes me want to show it to 
to everyone. Like when I'm having a bunch of people over at my house and we're having a couple of drinks and like I'll usually play some music or like, you know, we'll watch a music video or whatever. Like I want to just throw this on and be like, okay, guys, this is like 11 minutes. Like let's just watch this and then let's all talk about it. Um, Yeah, it was just, it was a fun watch. And it was like, it was so creepy. It was so creepy. And I normally hate creepy stuff, but... I weirdly enjoyed it, and I was weirdly comfortable watching it. We're converting you. You are. You guys are converting me. <laughs> First possession, now this. I'll invite everyone over, put this on, but like, make sure to make a point of like visibly locking every door. Yeah. <laughs> and I also, I also loved uh, the line, um, "Love shouldn't cost an arm and a leg." I think uh, Ben's. You mentioned that earlier, but I think that's just a really uh, like just the context of watching it too. Like it's funny that line is funny, but also I think that's actually a a, a really valuable quote, like in life too. You know, when it comes to relationships and stuff like yeah. that. So the um, love don't cost a thing by Jennifer Lopez. That's a valuable quote too. <laughs> yep, can't forget J Lo. That's <laughs> all J Lo. I think she has a new movie out, doesn't she? I think I saw an advertisement for it. Yeah, I think she's going to be starring alongside Owen Wilson. Oh, yes, that's what it was. Yeah. <clears throat> I kind of weirdly want to yeah. watch it, though. I haven't seen a Jennifer Lopez movie in, in a while, I think. Yeah. Same. <laughs> I heard she's really good in Hustlers. Oh, yeah, no, I saw that, actually. That's the last one I saw, Hustlers. Pat, what do you think? Five out of five. I love, uh, I love when someone clearly has a voice and vision style. This is like a pure expression of uh, an artistic vision. I just love to see it. I love that it's, it has its own voice and vision so much I can project my insanities onto it and try to read it and overread it. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a meditative film. It's like the opposite of like the, what is commercially viable today's, but it's its own style and it's its own everything. I just love, uh, I love stuff like this. So yeah, five out of five. And yeah, I love the, all the discussions we can have like the Tyler, you talked about, the scene of her laying with the flowers and that was one was like oh it's like a shampoo commercial but it's also like a it's like a casket type like white cloth under her with flowers around her and her eyes are closed and then yeah it's it's i think i believe it was similarly with the uh, mummy shots and yeah, it's just so much to discuss like it costs an arm and a leg for love yeah it, it could not be about cannibalism at all it could be about uh losing yourself in another in a relationship it can be about like um which which woman am, am i he's oh the sixth or seventh it's like yeah it's uh it could be about right. like, yeah it could be about so much stuff so it's about everything all at once maybe i don't know but it's definitely someone's vision and i love that benz what would uh you give your rating for the film Oh, what is it? It's like out of five, like letterbox. Yeah. Okay. Um, I go back to this like kind of like a lot, and I like to share it with people. Um, 
and uh you know people take their own you know things from it i really like the music in this um i guess i'll give it a, a five i guess uh it's it's very uh as uh pat pat says um has a you know a voice to it and you know i always um enjoy ultra ultra cinema and um just has a like a very like a distinct voice to it and um it shows in her other films so yeah i don't really take my rating seriously or anything but you know watch it it's on youtube avant-garde side of it it's well worth it especially if you're just looking for inspiration originality anything like that uh, did anyone have any sort of uh, uh other sorts of thoughts on this movie before we get into imposters maybe one when i was trying to find this movie i put it in google did any of you do that no, what did you find? The second result was like, I guess, I think a lot of people are looking to buy that mask. Oh my God. <laughs> I said that earlier. Yeah. The yeah, open mouth a, mask? Yeah, that's that was such a stunning, yeah, such a, if this was to get like a bigger commercial success, you'd see those masks. Yeah, the everywhere. Squid Games masks? Yeah, exactly. just like, it'd be, that's what I was about it, to say. Yeah, it'd be just like the Squid Games mask. You'd go on Hot Topic for like, all oh, I want a graphic band tee, and there'd be a wall full of them. You know, you bring up a, a good point. Like, I, I listened to uh, the episode you and Richie made of uh, the OA, the first episode, a uh, discussion on it. And you oh, were shit. both talking about Stranger Things in it. And. I think you and I have had this discussion multiple times before where it's like the over commercialization of a nostalgia. Like I, uh, when it comes to stranger things, um, like I remember, I think it was the latest season that came out, uh, right around the time that it first aired, I went into target and I saw just a bunch of the sailor costumes of the, of the mall store that they all work at or that two of the characters work at in the show. And I was just like, so disgusted and appalled by it. And it's like, well, <laughs> this is, this is what they do. And, um, you know, looping that back to, you know, people like looking for this open mouth mask of, uh, Prince charming or, or Arthur, or you know, I think that 
I don't know if it's if it's Prince Charming, but it's like one of the characters. Um, I think that Cecilia. Well, in an in a interview that I saw with Cecilia Condit, um, it's on a YouTube channel called Eternal Family, and it came out a few months ago. Um, she was like talking about like where she found the mask, and she found it in like the basement of a dental school. And she remarked on the mask saying that like one of the things that creeped her out about it the most was the fact that it was like constantly open, like it was constantly like looking to devour uh, the women that the pursuer was chasing. And to me, that like made it even like all the more disturbing, like hearing that take on it. And. I don't know, I I think that um, with the symbolism alone, of the main character Sharon uh and and her friend Janice like having like these sort of musical discussions between each other it's kind of like a lighthearted approach to recounting a very traumatic incident and my like the way that I'm like looking at it looking at it after the fact is that all of these is that the initial incident was when Prince Charming first stalked Sharon and, you know, she calls Janice up to say like, hey, there's somebody at my door right now. Um, I don't know what to do. And then all of a sudden, um, Prince Charming like comes in and then they have like this heated discussion about like what he's going to like do to her. And the line that just precedes it that like really stood out to me was um, was he felt that he felt that from the moment he kissed her, he would become the man that she would want him to be. And to me, that is just such a disconcerting mindset to have when it comes to approaching a relationship. Like if you view your salvation being in another person, you are missing the point of having a relationship with another person completely. Um, like this this has like so many interesting takes on the art of projecting your own thoughts, your own ideologies, your own mindsets onto that of another. And when you do that, you sort of like rob them of their own. And I I after watching this, I viewed this as like a almost like a kaleidoscopic uh, recounting of you know the the start of their journey of like constantly attracting or at least Sharon constantly for some reason coming into uh coming into like these very strange interactions with men who are like constantly trying to capture her in a way and if if you like take it literally of them like you know killing prince charming and then devouring him and then you see like all these other people and then there's like this really uh, cool sequence of uh, Janice firing the gun in the back in like a backyard or through a window. It's almost like she's practicing uh, for like their next encounter of like somebody following them home. But uh, there's also like a weird inkling of, oh, maybe this is what they're actually wanting to happen like to to eat more people 
Okay, anyways, Kevin, you, when you were talking about the scene of uh, Janice shooting out of her window at the masked men, and um, during each time she shoots one of them, it looks like she shoots him, and then it stays within the same frame, and it cuts to a masked person in another place like in the yard like behind from from in front of the bush to behind the tree to barely poke around the house whatever and what i took that is took that ad is that like even if you like this is like a really pessimistic view of like uh even if you get rid of like the guy that's stalking you or you know the the guy that won't leave you alone as a female it doesn't matter. There's going to be another one that will always try and prey on you. And um, I don't know. I just take like I work in. I've just known a lot. Of, I've met a lot of people that have dealt with that type of stuff. And I think it's totally true. I think even if. You know, you read yourself of one villain, there can easily be another one. And it's just a constant battle through life. Um, and I think that's uh, I think that maybe that would be something that um, she was trying to touch on in the film, but maybe not too. But I there's also that instance where uh, they're having the um, cigarettes, and then uh, the mass figure appears again, but then ducks down when they they look through the window. Oh yeah, doesn't he like of... drink drink the wine that they had? You're right. Yeah, yeah. And he, I always thought that they were like inviting him in at that point when he drank the wine i was like okay wait he's a part of their crew but then i was like wait i think he they're not noticing him they must have not have noticed when he was drinking their wine or maybe like when because i don't think they noticed because then after that they uh i think one of them points him out and then after that that's when he ducks under the bush yeah it seems like a um a very well like the thing that i love about like avant-garde and like this type of expressionistic but not i don't know it's 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 more like a more like an experience rather than a full-fledged like narrative um is that the sequence of events like they develop like this huge um emotive experience of like undergoing it yourself in a way where even though this figure like is constantly like showing up, whether they're like walking down the street and then it cuts to like the other person going their own way. And then the figure appears there as well. It's like, it's constantly like in the back of their heads, you know, like the, like it's always there and it, and it never fully goes away. And the fact that like with them relinquishing like their submissive qualities in in order to take on their own sort of uh, their own agency when it comes to, uh, you know, pursuing their pursuer in a way, in a, in a, in a way like Tyler, I feel like what you were saying, there's always that, that feeling of a person like waiting or who was like constantly like, you know, in the dark waiting to prey upon them without them even knowing, like even in, even as they relish their victory and I I think that I'm in line with that same thought too. Like it's it is pessimistic, but yeah, at the same time, like 
better way to put it though for sure not that that like you know that's the end all be all like yeah you're gonna get stalked by another dude um no like it could never happen again but that i think yeah that's a better way to put it is like it's the thought though that it could happen you know it's always in the back of your mind yeah like that is i don't know like i think that you brought up a really good point with that and that's absolutely terrifying like that's something that you know when i've when i've been with uh with like friends of mine who who are women and they get like catcalled and stuff like i would just like look to them and i would just be, be like in shock and like i would be stupefied by it i'd be like wait did that actually just happen and they're like yeah i like deal with that on a daily basis and to me it's so i don't know it it's it's very hard to recognize that that's something that I will n- probably never have to ever worry about, but also very disheartening in a in a sense that like there are people who have to like constantly struggle through that every single day of their life when they're simply just trying to get by, and that's so just that that makes my heart break. Yeah, it's tough. In the opening line, I think of the um is uh, Sharon always always um seemed to attract violent men. Uh, it was like the before the um prelude to the song, which was um kind of sets the, the mood later on for these um these little points. Well, does anyone have any closing thoughts on this short film before we move on to imposters? Uh, I thank you, Ben's, for the recommendation. For sure, especially after this, uh, after this conversation. This is why, I, like, when I watched it, I was like, I wanted to show this to people just to, uh, because it. I think it. Anything I always say this to you, yeah. Anything that just sparks up good conversation with people after you watch it, I am a fan of it. And especially this, it's eleven minutes long. It's like sit down, you know. It's not like you gotta make somebody commit to a long, long experience. And also, just short films in general. I'm I'm excited to incorporate short films into lay film. And I'm glad this was the uh, this this is the first one. Yep, Ben's is a trendsetter. <laughs> yep. Well, uh, with that said, we're gonna move on to the feature film that Ben's has recommended for us, which is Imposters. Once again, it was made in 1979 by director Mark Rappaport. And it's an off-kilter comedy mystery focused on two magicians trying to find Egyptian jewels and their promiscuous assistant, uh, followed by a man who loves the assistant. And it follows their hijinks. Every time I thought of you, Tina, since that first time I saw you, I can't think. It worked. He knew how to get to this girl's heart, this romantic from the old school. He triumphed with the pretense of passion, where plain old sex might have worked as well, but could have failed. On the other hand, I hadn't gotten such a convincing or corny offer in quite a while. Maybe I can learn to love him, anyone who talks like that. Besides, who was I kidding? I needed a place to stay. 
And, uh, yeah, shall we get started with initial impressions of it? Yeah, um, I'm a little upset by that synopsis. Because when I first read it, I'm like, oh, right, yeah, that's, yeah, um, I'm in for this kind of story. But while I'm watching the film, I felt like the synopsis should have been different because it really came off as if, like, the whole, hey, let's go steal some jewels storyline was not even at the forefront at all. It was like, wasn't even a significant part of the story. And yeah, I think that that kind of dim- hurt or like diminished my expectations uh, when I was viewing this film. But yeah, I don't know about everyone else. I think uh, I went into this movie cold, thankfully. Because if I came into this movie thinking it was about finding a treasure or whatever, because I did read the synopsis after, or especially after just hearing it, I'm like, ah, <laughs> but to be I fair, don't Tyler, even know if that's I feel what like the movie a, was about. I feel like a lot of people would have gone into it cold. I don't even think there's a trailer. Or, or is there a trailer? I don't no, know. I know, but you could read you could read uh, <laughs> synopsis before. Or right, right, that's true, that's true. <laughs> Which, even when Kevin read it, I was like, and then they mention, uh, like, Peter at the end. Which, I don't want to bring up spoilers right now, but... Uh, I don't know, yeah. I don't know how to feel about this movie yet. I don't know how to feel about this movie yet. It, especially, um, this was a... Like, it's definitely, obviously, it's hard to find. Like, it's pretty much impossible, not impossible to find, but uh, it's hard to find anything on this movie, researching it. And then for me, just watching it, uh, I feel like I had a not a hard time watching it, but just a hard time, like, I guess, following the movie or enjoying it. But I also, when I do these episodes with you guys, especially on difficult movies, I love hearing your guys' thoughts because then you, everyone's so awesome that, like, uh, you know, your thoughts kind of, like, sell me on it and it, like, brings new perspectives in for me, too. So I'm, ex- I'm excited to hear what everybody thinks because I did not enjoy this movie, but. Yeah, I'm kind of I'm with you on that, Tyler. I feel like. I kind of want to hear what everyone else, like, you know, like, just discussion on it and then like I feel like then I can give it give myself more of a feel because for now I'm just like oh I was like okay but I feel like you guys will you know open up my mind a little bit I'll I'll start overreading it right now but first uh I need a pat tangent right now you're gonna get like three maybe (laughs) but I did look up the log line of the synopsis like Rich, Richie was a guy that was like a I thought of a way different movie. And then uh, I was pleasantly surprised with how uh, deep it got. Like I was expecting kind of like a maybe like, I don't know, for some reason, I thought a clue. I don't know why I thought I thought of like a clue type movie. But uh, this isn't that. Uh, what it feels like to me is like a, a transcendent an era transitioning film like this is like 
79, but there's like a lot of like early 80s feel in there. And then there's like even there's like stuff I was overreading, but I still feel like it's justified in my overreading. Such as like uh the whole premise of like the they're they're pursuing like Egyptian jewels, you know, like uh it's it's flirting with like the the colonial like robbery aspect. And uh that opening part, I was I don't know why, but they're showing like they're they're showing uh I think like this film. Yeah, the slide film of like the uh the treasures from like the one of the expeditions they're pursuing, I believe. And the whole time they're saying like a new sheet. But like my mind was like going to like chic over and over and over. And I was thinking of like in the late 70s and 80s, there's like a lot of like destabilization and installing of like leaders in those regions by like the Western sphere of influence like there was like a new chic the, i don't know why i don't know why like the it took me until like it panned out the camera showed it was literally a sheet but i was sitting there like oh these two guys like just talking about like the chic that was disposed in some region that they're planning to steal the jewels from but even like the the initial but i justify that irrational attachment to like like a, a character remarks about his family having like riches and you know, like taken tokens from another culture and another civilization. Like, and then some characters do say, like, what do you even do with this? Why would you want this item? Like, sure, it's worth a lot of money, but you literally can't sell it. Uh, yeah, like the only thing it's good for is going in a museum. And then they joke that the museum will be cursed for like it's plunder, the sin of plundering from like these ancient reservoirs. Yeah, there's like a, I feel like there's a commentary on that kind of stuff, as well as another more fringe one was uh, there's a lot of uh, what's it called uh, it feels like. Would you guys quantify this as like queer cinema in a way? It seems very fluid with its. I I um, think so. Yeah. Okay. I would say so. Yeah. Because yeah, there's. Yes. There's a, um. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, Mark Rappaport's other films also kind of um, have queer characters in them. Um, so they very is very early example of a uh, the New York scene, and um, there's a lot of coded language in this film. Uh, the characters seem to all like talk in code and like just um, whisper something to one character and and say something to another character, and the, it's interesting to. Rewatching this movie after several years, paying attention to like the glances that each character gives each other, and um, never really thought about it until you pointed it out about the the whole theme of Egyptian Egyptian culture and their use of hieroglyphics and how that's also a coded language that was kind of lost to time itself. Yeah, with with the, with that aspect of the film, with the 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 fluidity of sexuality. And then uh, again, this is right before, but this is like within two years of like the AIDS epidemic. And so when I was watching this, I thought there was like a significant connection to that. But then when I did research, it's like, oh, it's not there. Not literally, but there's like ref referential 
language and like the sh- like the pre-existence of language of like i think a character is like remarking about someone will catch the bug and in their term the the term for the bug is like the uh like a, i think it's like the attraction the peter from like a male character or it could have been a female character towards another female character but they like referenced like the i don't know how i'm trying to say this but yeah it's a great movie to overanalyze and then realize later when you look it up like oh no i'm making stuff up yeah pat and ben's i I think you both bring up really good points when it comes to the hidden meanings of this movie i had no idea what to expect going into it i just sort of downloaded it and uh started going from there wait kevin you downloaded this movie uh through means of such (laughs) (laughs) of a historical preservation um and this movie was like very like it took me a while to get used to the tone that was being presented to me just because like uh just like with possibly in michigan i was so like i haven't seen anything quite like it and I want to say up until about like a third of the movie, that's when it like finally like start to hit me. Uh, There's like a lot of like zaniness to it, but also there's like a veneer of like pastiche and in in it. And uh, Pat, like you talking about um, the, you know, the emphasis on like the Egyptian storyline of them trying to like steal like these jewels. um, It brings up a thought to me where it's like, Oh, well, like, what was old Hollywood doing? It was capitalizing on, like, other cultures that were far and distant from Hollywood at the time. And then when you have this film, it's, like, so anti-realistic that, I mean, you have, like, set pieces that act as, you know, the real thing. And, like, throughout a majority, or throughout a, a good portion of this movie, it's very theatrical and its presentation that it's creating like a, a new sense of reality. And when you have all of this zaniness and like this emphasis on old Hollywood culture of um, creating like melodrama and um, also like this uh, very exotic sense of adventure, but also like this, this underlying sexuality that it creates like a, a whole new meaning in like the subtext of it all, which like, Ben's you mentioned like how characters like speak in code that's something that I like I I felt like a vague inclination towards especially in like conversations with Peter and Tina two of the main characters um Peter being the sort of uh the observer in you know the theater uh that Tina Chucky Mikey Gina and Stephanie are all a part of um, he's he comes in as sort of an observer in it, and he becomes infatuated with Tina, who is I believe one of the main performers. Um, that's that's a thing that like was the the whole narrative to me was very difficult to follow at times, which I feel like was purposeful um, to create like sort of like a dizzying effect, and yeah, like I was saying the. With the coded language that Ben's mentioned, uh, I picked up a lot 
I picked up on it a lot with the conversations with, between Peter and Tina. Um, he would say one thing, and then she would comment on that, and then say a completely thing or a completely different thing that undercuts what she was saying. Um, or she's like, "Oh no, oh no, well I'm just this sort of person." And then he would say, "Oh well, what was that?" And then she'd say, "Oh nothing." And like it would just create like so many contradictory statements in it that it felt like uh, as an observer or as like a, an audience member to this movie, it felt like such a, a cat and mouse type feeling of like chasing the narrative and trying to figure out what it is and like finally catch it to where it like under to where I understand it wholly. And I feel like that's very much ingrained in this movie. And I really enjoyed the the surrealistic or the surrealist elements to, of it and the anti-realism of it all. And I think that this is a very good uh, piece to watch after possibly in Michigan because with that movie or with possibly in Michigan, to me, it felt so distanced from reality that it felt uncannily hyper-realistic, whereas Imposters is almost grounded in the reality of creating an art piece on a very low budget that it ends up representing reality in a strange way i like if that makes sense i don't know um and i feel like the whole movie like it's not necessarily about the narrative of jewels or anything it's about like the relationships and the dynamics between the six main characters and how it's constantly shifting and it's it's very fluid and pat you mentioned um how this could be uh linked in with queer cinema and i i definitely agree too it's it's very fluid in that way and it's at the forefront of of uh confronting that especially during you know this was made in 1979 and I think that for that alone, like, I feel like this this movie deserves like recognition in terms of like incorporating like diversity alone, because, I mean, uh, Benji mentioned that this movie or that Mark Rappaport had, uh, sort of a standing in the New York community. Is that is that right? Benz, I don't think any of us can hear you. Dr. Benz, we are trying to reach you.
think he may have gone to the restroom. Oh. I think it might be some technical difficulties on his end. I made a note. I'll remember. Mm. Oh, it's all good. Yeah, take your time. I will be right back. Hello, Benz. You hear me? Hey, welcome back. Oh, hi. Sorry about that. Yeah, my AirPods just kind of like died for a second, but I think they recharged right away. Good. I had no idea what happened. <laughs> no worries. Uh, I think Kevin was asking about um, Mark uh, Rappaport's reputation or his standing in the like uh, New York community. That's right. Oh, yes. New York at this time was uh, pretty amazing. You had, um, uh, I'm forgetting his name. The guy, um, uh, sorry, uh, Dead Don't Die director. Do you know what I'm talking about? He's always yeah, been like, um, uh, uh, is it Jim, Jim, yeah, Jar- Jim Jarmusch. Yeah. And like Abel Ferreira. They had a bunch of people at this time. Mark Rappaport was, was also a figure in that community too. Um, he made a lot of movies with uh, queer characters. Uh, he's way less known than these other guys um, who kind of went a more commercial route. But the interesting thing about um, Mark Rappaport is that he, I believe in the 90s, he moved to Paris. Um, he's living there now. He doesn't actually own any of the rights to his movies anymore, which is kind of sad. Um, so yeah, that's why a lot of his movies can't be found. He doesn't own the prints oh, or anything. That's... He gave it away to someone to, to, that he trusted to, to help archive it and clean it up and everything. And that person, um, I don't know, I think there's a lawsuit going on with it and stuff like that. Oh, wow. That's crazy. I wouldn't be surprised if there's, you know, gonna, if he ever had a documentary or something about that that's really interesting yeah, yeah. i feel and, like the way you go for it Benz. oh and yeah all of his movies are like i think self-funded or he, he's won money somewhere um this this film in particular was made on like one hundred fifteen thousand dollars, which is uh in 1979 that i did the calculation it's like half a million dollars which was a lot of money at the time for now even um yeah uh, self-financing a film is kind of wild. Like um, on Cassavetes used to self he used to he got a mortgage on his house. You know, every time he made a film, which is you know, if you think about that, it's if your film doesn't make enough money, you lose your house. It's kind of like crazy. No one ever you know self-finances their own right films to do that twelve times. And you know, we always talk about um, 
know, the freedom to to make uh, art and things like that. But um, you know, when something like that is up against you, like oh, this money, this movie doesn't make money, I lose my house. You know, you kind of have to fall into like certain trappings of what works because you're the one fronting the money. Yeah, I, I really like that uh, a successful uh, part of um, self-financing your films is M. Night Shyamalan. I like that he's one of the few that's able to do it and to be able to continue making the kind of films that he wants to make as opposed to what the studios want him to make. At least, at least within like the past what, four to five years or so. Yeah, it it brings up a whole other like discussion of, um, I guess like uh, patrons of the arts in, in a sense. Um, when I was taking a writing course at Sac State, uh, the professor was talking about like how short films are more revered in European settings because um. You know, they just value like short form content more in a way compared to American audiences. And to me, I feel like that's such a crime. Like if, if there is any sort of like veracity to that sentiment, I feel like that's, su that's such a, a minimizing mindset to have towards short film content um, because it, it should be respected just as much as longer form content or episodic content. Um, I feel like it stands on its own. It's it's like, oh, well, do you hate like a Polaroid fo photograph compared to like a medium format print? Or do you hate like the, the the tiny paintings compared to like the, you know, the the fresco that's painted on like the Sistine Chapel or something like that? I don't know. I feel like all art sh all art should be held on a equal footing with one another and it should be interpreted by the viewer rather than you know, uh, push to the furthest recesses of uh, attainment in a way, um, which is like I, I was reading Sculpting in Time uh, by Tarkovsky, and he was talking about like how a lot of his films were funded by government agencies or through his like institutions that he was attending. And I was just thinking back to like my own time, like at Sac State and stuff. And uh, even outside of that, like making films outside of an institution and outside of crowdfunding, it's so it's so damn difficult to fund your own projects. And even like now, like a, a big hurdle that I face when it comes to making additional projects is the fact that I want to pay people who work on it, you know, to actually like compensate them for their time, whether it's like something small compared to what I wish I could give them, uh, just as like a token of, a, of, a, of appreciation and to make them feel like they're, you know, what they're pursuing is actually worth, uh, the time that they're putting into it and that I value their talent value their talent um i just wish that there was like a system in place to provide more accessibility to streamlining the art of creation in order to make it all the more accessible to wider audiences and 
even in our own community of Sacramento, um, the film community is never, I feel like it hasn't quite taken off, even though like this whole area is like ripe for taking and it has been for decades now. It feels like, um, even long before I've been born possibly, um, and it makes me wonder why that is. And, you know, there was like a, a, a new commissioner put in place for the film department here in Sacramento. And it's like, OK, but what are they doing to give uh, sort of a soapbox to the the voices that are already in this community? And it's like, oh, well, they aren't. Um, if anything, they're just trying to create a backdrop for other entities to come here and film in order to create more exposure uh, to create like the second Hollywood. And it's like, is that how you, is that how you create a community uh, when it comes to engaging with art or I'm not sure, but I, I wish that. And, and, and that's, that's one of the things that um, I appreciate about you, Ben's is the fact that you're so ingrained with this underground culture or this undercurrent of Sacramento of uh, even with like such institutions, as you mentioned before, the Red Museum, where they have all of these strange and out there acts that, you know, if you just stumbled upon it, just walking down the street, it would be something that, you know, nobody could even imagine, you know, you have like noise rock artists and you have like uh, installation pieces and like all these other things that like these pro these prolific acts that deserve widespread recognition throughout the community and like the fact that um Mark Rappaport and like the talks of like M Night Shyamalan are able to have like this sort of or they had this sort of means to uh create something that they envisioned in order to share it with other people i think that that is just the fact that they did it is like a standout achievement. And with that said, shall we give our ratings for imposters? Before we move on to spoilers? Yeah, let's do it. Um, yeah, I'll go first. I'll give the film a 2.8 out of 5. I found it to be quite amusing and funny at times. Uh, I really like the the performance uh, or the uh, the actor that portrays Tina and the um, and the twin brothers. I thought they did a really great job. Um, yeah, the characters Chucky. And Mikey, I thought they were really, really entertaining. But I think my, what hurt my view of the film is that like, whenever we get to Chucky and Mikey's part of the story, it almost felt like a different movie 
and it seemed totally tonally inconsistent when um, we transition into Peter and Tina's um, storyline. And some of the transitions and the editing was like really strange to me. It felt real, totally out of place and jarring. So when when it transitions back to um, what Chucky and Mikey are doing or like it just transitions to like the next day or like to them, you know, to them doing something else. It just felt really odd and it kind of disrupted the flow. It was really hard for me to engage or like stay focused with the film. Um, although I will say like, uh, I really like the dialogue. I thought that the, I thought the dialogue was really well written. It's really smart. Uh, and it does go over my head. Like I would have to rewatch the film again to just fully engage with it because I was totally not with it the first time around. I think this is considering like, I haven't really seen Mark Rappaport's work before. I'm not familiar with it. I haven't seen Jim Jarmusch or, um, Abel Ferreira. So yeah, maybe for now. Yeah. It's just a 2.8, but, uh, you know, at least I was pretty entertained and, um, I think I just had to adjust like my expectations of what the story is about the next time out because um, it felt very meandering and slow and um, yeah. And I really hated Peter as a character. <laughs> I think maybe I, I'm supposed to not like him, but um, yeah, I felt really like suffocated by that character and I'm just like, please go away. So yeah, that's my that's my rating so far. I can go next. Richie gave me an idea, perfect connection for something I was trying to express. But I'll start with uh, uh I give this film a four point five out of five. Uh, again, I feel it has a voice, it has a vision, and it's working towards achieving that voice and vision. And I love the themes it touches on, even indirectly. And uh, there's a there's one there's one shot that will stick with me that I want to get to in spoilers because it's kind of maybe ish spoilers. But it's just like a very funny like when I I have a big grin on my face looking back at this scene and I just remember it. And <laughs> I just remember my me seeing it and being like bewildered. But now I just I can't help but smile when I think of that scene. And then uh, you touched on something Richie mentioned that was like one of my fascinations with the film is like the, how it feels kind of, it feels kind of seventies and like predictive eighties at the same time as where the, the brothers characters and how they feel like kind of separated, but like a lot of their stuff is just, it, it felt like a critique of like, somehow it felt like a preemptive critique of like the eighties, like blues brothers type you know, like kind of zany, wacky, humorous, like, yeah, just like kind of maybe it's been a while since I've seen the Blues Brothers, but there's not a lot of artistic depth, but it's like a product of the 80s. But so, yeah, it's, I feel, I felt like something like it was a critique of that or like an early window into that kind of a genre that was going to be created or being created at that moment. It feels like this film captures it 
in my opinion, or at least like even predicts it. And then is also like doing a critique of it where it's like, yeah, it's these zanies, they're like zany 80s movie characters, but like also they're like abhorrent in ways. Like when you take a step back. And then, yeah, you're not supposed to like Peter, and I really like Tina. That's my review or opinion. I'm going to give this film a 3.5 out of 5. I feel like a lot of the plot as well as dialogue flew over my head, which I feel like if I did understand it, it might change my rating. Um, however, my rating can change quite easily in the ensuing discussion as more light is shed upon it. Um, one thing that I am starting to pick up on is the fact that the entire plot is mainly just meant to be a veneer for the psychological inner workings of each of the characters. They sort of embody this sort of archetype of, uh, for instance, like Tina being like the unattainable, like the divine being that everybody wishes to be with, but can't seem to grasp onto and she wants to you know remain grounded but it's just in her nature to shift constantly from one thing to the next whereas like with peter he's like so infatuated with fantasy that he can't seem to be he can't seem to be settled on uh making peace with reality like you know he's a photographer and there's like this brilliant scene that I'm sure we'll like talk about later where it's him and Tina and they're about to like take a photo. And he's like, oh, well, let's pose as if we're about to kiss. And it's just so. It like breaches, you know, what? I'm changing my my rating three point seven five out of five. <laughs> um, um, and it's just like so it just breaches the the seams of reality by being so anti-realistic in the melodrama. Like watching this reminded me of Twin Peaks in a way where it sort of takes on a lot of the convention of the typical melodrama that might've been seen on like television at that time where, you know, like, Oh, why are viewers watching? Oh, well, they're trying to get invested in, in the dirt and like the dirty grimy things that are like going on between characters and i feel like it it really clicked for me during the latter portion of the movie after i was thinking about where all these characters first came to meet versus where they were at the time that i was watching it probably about like three quarters of the way in and seeing the outcome that happened or that was waiting for all of them i feel like that's the thing that made me really appreciate it is the dynamics that were changing between them all and um going back to the veneer of um old hollywood and like old theater being put on display to create like this sort of uh escape of reality for viewers even though like there's no for the plays that they're putting on or like hardly anyone i should say um 
you have like individuals like Peter who are like caught up in in it and become like windswept in a way. I think that the entire like critique of of uh that era of Hollywood uh compared to what they were trying or what Mark Rappaport was was uh, saying with this film, I think it creates like such a unique divide between the two that it shows like what once was compared to what things are to become, which is uh, ultimately like a simulation of what we once knew as, me- as melodrama becoming all the more realistic and anti-reality. So, yeah, I feel like my rating is going to change. <laughs> but uh as it stands right now 0.75 out of 5 I feel the same I feel like my rating's gonna change but for right now I regretfully have to give this a 2.75 out of 5 um so far just with discussion I'm really just based off watching it I don't I don't know. I just really, uh, I don't know if it like, I like when movies make me work hard and like, you know, like try and grasp what's going on. And it's not that I didn't know what was going on, but I just felt like I didn't really feel like impacted, I guess, by the movie, nor did I really enjoy much of it. Like, I guess like, Okay, not enjoy it, I guess it's too far to say, but like, I don't know, I just felt like I wasn't too into it. Like, uh, I feel like I had to work hard for it, and I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm waiting on some good points to like sell me on liking this movie, but for right now, I just really don't, to be honest. But there's still stuff I liked, like, like honestly, like the whole dynamic between the brothers, I really enjoyed. Like there were so many one-liners that I really liked, um, especially from oh, God, I forget his name. Like the shorter one, or I guess the Chucky. Yeah, no, wait, Chucky. Uh, the crazy one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the more the murderous one. He was like yes. He's like, they don't know spit from Spinoza or whatever. He kept, he had a bunch of one-letters like Capiche, Capiche Pisano <laughs> that I thought were like super funny. Just like, I was trying to find like I was just watching it and I like, I just, I, I don't know. I guess I just wasn't like, like, I was just trying to find something to like from it. So I was like, okay, I'm taking like, I like just the dialogue and uh, I don't know. Yeah, like I'm with you, Tyler. Tina's my favorite character for sure. Like, I feel like the brother, the magician's storyline was, I agree, like, especially after hearing the synopsis, it's kind of misleading, like, the whole treasure or finding the Egyptian treasure aspect is, like, really not a part of the story. I think Tina and Peter are the two main characters of the movie. And, yeah, I mean, I... I I hate Peter for sure, but I think though I like I'm I'm interested. I want to get into. I have like I don't want to talk spoilers, but there's a dynamic with Peter, a certain complex in him that I want to explore, like with you guys or like talk about with you guys. But I don't want to give it away right now. I guess 
if you guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's a, that's a really good way of putting it in Thai. Yeah. Um, but that's just like, I feel like two points. Like, see, I never give ratings like this. I already feel bad. But like, honestly, I'm just, I'm being honest. Like watching this movie, I was like, dang, like I'm really not like, really not feeling this movie right now. And I'm trying to grasp it. Fully grasp it. No, it's fine, Tyler. Oh, like, I'm, I'm trying to. I'm, I'm trying. Like, I, too. I want. I want to like it. I want to like it. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah, I think the movie definitely felt maybe ten to fifteen minutes too long. Like, I think there were certain scenes where, like, if those scenes weren't yeah. in the movie, like, I, it wouldn't even affect my viewing of it. I think and, that more. Yeah, I agree with that. Like, the, I think I enjoyed the scenes with. The twins, but I think some of them went a little bit too long, and I really enjoyed everything between uh, Peter and uh, Tina. Yeah, like at, at times I almost felt like we spent way too much, way more time in the twins' room than them like actually going on treasure hunting or whatever. Like the plot is supposed to be. <laughs> In my opinion, but I, I felt like, yeah, the pacing wasn't there. Like it, yeah, they definitely could have um, cut some scenes out, in my opinion. But um, yeah, I, I, yeah, the whole like polyamorous promiscuous scenario was quite intriguing, though, I have to say. And like, there's, I, I think the movie's strength lies within the, the, the chunks of dialogue that they have to. Um, give out and I think that the actors did a really good job with that um, but yeah I think the divide for me is just how strange like how strange the acting is from the twins as opposed to Tina and Peter because like Tina and Peter act a little bit more realistic in my opinion and then the twins just seem like they're coming out of a cartoon at least Chucky does but I know that's just like his character and his eccentricities and stuff. So I don't know. It just felt really, really strange. And it I know was, that's how it's supposed to be. And, I did yeah. like enjoy a lot of scenes with them though, like especially the uh, scene where they're sitting poolside and they both have like the funny glasses on. I yeah. That yeah, yeah, that I was, mean, yeah. I, I enjoyed yeah. I enjoyed some of those scenes, but then after like I was like, okay, yeah, like I'm liking this, and then like they kept the scene going for like another like minute and a half, two minutes. Right. It's like watching a skitty keen peel, and they like go over the same joke like five times. And you're like, all right, we're over it. <laughs> Benz, right. what did you think about the movie, and what would your rating be? Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, cool. Sick. Yeah, my um had a a little bit of a uh crisis with my freaking iPod uh <laughs> headphone it was just like dying really fast, but I think I'm good. Um I had seen this movie several years ago and uh, I remember really liking it. I've watched a lot of Mark Rappaport previously and I didn't like a lot of his films. I mean, I didn't like a lot of his narrative films. He has like documentaries which are really, really interesting, um, just about films. 
And uh, but I really remembered liking this, and I had the memory of liking this film, so I wanted to find it again and rewatch it. And the like the first third of the movie, it's really brutal to like follow um, because I mean it's uh, characters with like you know two names: Tina, Gina, Marilyn, and you know um, the other one, and then. Characters switching accents, from like Austrian accent. To, um, so it's it's very it's very um, it's very brutal in that aspect. In the rewatching this again, but then I rewatch it again after that, and um, it was uh, it it was much more interesting to see um, going through the, uh, the the language of the film and then the, the glances that they give each other. And um, it's also very, very, it's a very, very funny film to me. Um, and uh, yeah, I thought, I thought uh, the the Chucky character was like such a such a force in the movie. And um, I really liked his uh, commitment to the role. Um, I think he's a um, he was a he's pretty well known in the, the theater community um, at this time. I think. I'm not really familiar with his work. Charles uh, Landlum, I think is his name. Um, but uh, going back to the, the rating of the film, I uh, I remembered really liking it, and I still do on um, rewatch. Um, give this a four out of five. All right. And with that said... Let's go ahead and continue into spoilers. Peter? It's me, Tina. I wanted to give you my number in case you wanted to reach me. If you want to call, I... I hope you do. I'm staying with a cousin in Connecticut. The number is 203... If you haven't already seen this movie, um, I wish you the best of luck in finding it. It was quite difficult for us to fall to find. Um, this is probably the most difficult that I've actually uh, experienced finding. Um, but yeah, if you happen to watch it, awesome. If not, you can feel free to listen on. But yeah, let's go ahead and get on into it. I can't contain myself. I got to bring it up. The scene with, I think it's Tina and Gina. Where they're uh, kissing and like, uh, I think it's in the, maybe the dressing room. Am I remember mm -hmm. that correctly? Yeah. Uh, I will always remember that scene for the hilarious. It, it, I want to say it was intentionally hilarious or no matter what, I love it. But yeah, there's like a it's like a closer shot of them kissing in the mirror or maybe it's just them kissing in front of the mirror. Oh, yes. With the three with the three. Yeah, that faces was awesome. Yeah. Peter. I, yeah. Oh, my God. That's the best shot in the whole in the whole film. Yeah, it has like the portraits of him. Yeah, it yeah. Like it's one on the mirror. Like it's like a headshot of the actor. It's just a headshot of Peter's. He probably forced her to take 
<laughs> and the catch is that's just a lee shot though he says uh oh it's because she looks at the small little portrait and she says oh it's to keep me on my toes or something <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then the camera and then he pans up. <laughs> <laughs> but he's everywhere <laughs> he's a wall <laughs> it's like it's yeah, revealed a mirror earlier yeah because like the camera pans back and then like yeah you see him in the mirror it's like a bigger photo it's like whoa and then he goes far enough backwards because that whole wall is his face like overlooking yeah, it's like a poster <laughs> my god dude P- peter's like the stalker from uh possibly in michigan or something yeah. like this guy is right? like a step away from being a murderer which is why i feel like they these two make such great companion pieces like whether or not you meant for it to be like that ben's like it like totally works yeah, I view I view Peter as like a like the for Tina, he's like an avatar of like heteronormity she has to conform to. Where he's like uh I think one of their early interactions is like they're walking through a mall or maybe a shopping center. And he's trying to like I don't know if he's trying to start an argument, but he's like, Oh, isn't that guy handsome? Isn't that guy handsome? <laughs> isn't that guy handsome? And then he goes, Oh, I think that woman's beautiful. And that's when Tina hops in. Like, ah, she's not my type. And then there's like a small argument about that, but then they they kind of make up quickly where it feels like Tina's like feeling the pressure of being caught or being exposed. And she has to conform to that. And then the other scene where it's like a double speak scene where I think it's just Peter alone in like a very 80s bike in like a perfume section, which really reminded me of probably Michigan. Or he's buying a certain brand of perfume for Tina. And then the uh, the woman at the register like drops some drops drops some slurs, like uh, homophobic slurs. Like, oh, this perfume's only worn worn by whores and uh, dykes. And then he goes, "What's that?" And he turns, and then and then, they, he, and then he looks right into the camera. Yeah, <laughs> I thought yeah. that was like <laughs> that was so that was one of my favorite I really did not like that scene. I was like really that's this is the moment where they break the fourth wall and like and i don't know i didn't and then didn't, they reel it back in yeah i thought it was like kind of like really darkly fucked up but like still funny like yeah it was kind of playing on the preconceived notions of the audience because like right away the uh the clerk like corrects themselves well they don't even He's correct like, themselves so, like we hear them correctly yeah and they're so like, like, oh, no, it's meant for like and horrors or something. It's a nice no, it day was... to ride your bike outdoors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, and it's like, oh, it just sounded like what it was that Peter heard. And it <laughs> like I that was like one of the more like intellectual moments of the movie for me. You're right, actually. Like that could just be his perspective of what he's hearing, because that's my whole thing with him. With Peter, it's like he has this. I think he gets off on the like fantasy or not the fantasy, but the reality of like having these confrontations with women, you know, that's why he has all these, like almost these pictures of almost kissing a woman. Like he gets off on the fact of like almost finding the one, but then whatever confrontations came about and that's why they didn't work out. And that's like his thing. Like he loves I guess finding a beautiful, perfect, perfect like lady, and then finds their flaws and wants to 
be suspicious and yeah, I was into it. I don't know. That's a, it's like a weird, weird fetish thing, is what I took it as. Cool. And it's also implied that he has he's having some kind of like either medical or mental issues, right? So like, because he was taking those pills. Oh, I think that's um the werewolf thing because throughout the film they're talking about horror movies and the twins always mention werewolves and um, I think that's like he's like the wolf. I think uh, Mm -hmm. Kevin was talking about in the the possibly Michigan how um the mouth agape is like the man always trying to devour a woman. And I think it, it kind of falls in line with that, the whole werewolf, um, the werewolf scheme. Of, so, uh, so they're you know. there for like, suppress his inner beast or something? Or... Yeah, that's that's what I got on the second, third viewing, actually, now that I think about it. Um, because of the first time when it's shown, it's like very, conf- there's like no context. He's just a hairy dude. And then he just takes these pills. But then throughout the film, they're just talking about like werewolves and stuff. I'm like, oh, okay. I really like that, Vince, because it runs me of uh, what Kev was talking about, like the old Hollywood angle, like the whole medallion's curse. It's like the, isn't that old, is it Paramount? Mm-hmm. It even shows parts from the movie where it's like an old Hollywood, like the curse of the onk or the what's the there's an old old hollywood film about where they they raid a tomb and they get the mummy's curse and the werewolf fits right into that with my mind i like old hollywood camp horror oh yeah, yeah. that brings me to the mm-hmm. most meta part of the film it's like when they're watching tv and uh they're describing like the horror movies that they, they like to see and so it's pretty interesting because like the dialogue kind of syncs up with the uh I forget her name, but Gina is like Gina? sitting down. Yeah. And she's like, What this movie needs is some background music or something because she's talking about silent films and then she's oh, actually yeah. talking about this movie and it's like she turns on the music and everything. It's like, Whoa, this is And she puts like the <laughs> the and she puts the radio transistor between her legs and like starts dancing. To like yeah. amp it up a bit. Yeah, and yeah, then I... Peter. Oh no, go for it, Richie. Oh no, and then I like the part where Peter's like, "Oh yeah, they need they need to um put like some uh, ethnics and minorities in this movie and have them get killed off." And then they're like, "Oh, that's oh, so yeah. racist!" And then they're and then he's like, "No, it's for like commentary and whatnot." And it's just like. That's still that's so so relevant today. Like that's the only like one of the few times, you know. And if you're watching a horror movie, like when they perp- Yeah, there's like of Peter and how like he has to take the pills to like suppress that urge to devour, you know, the other. And it's so strange because like the more and more we talk about this movie, the more and more it it feels so like it just falls into place with possibly in Michigan as like a companion piece to it because they deal with the same type of 
the same type of gaze that is placed on the on the feminine and you know like when it comes to like old archaic like outdated views of it as being like submissive and you know like being the assertive one and like toppling over that you have like peter representing that sort of uh ide ideology of embellishing the fantasy and for anyone who like really enjoys like this uh that type of uh topic i'd highly recommend checking out uh slavage zizek's um the pervert's guide to cinema uh he basically goes through film history and discusses a lot of the uh, american ideology that's placed on cinema as a whole as like representing like a mirror to reality and how fantasy is always meant to be out of grasp because the moment that it is attained in film or even in your own waking reality it hardly ever lives up to the fantasy that you built up for it and peter is like the you know he he is um a standout representative of attaining that reality and rejecting it in favor of fantasy in this regards especially in terms of the ending for this film um peter you know once he is denied the fantasy of being able to uh capture tina you know he has like this very strange this this standout scene to me in the movie is when he and tina are discussing uh this set of memories that he has of having bird traps. Uh, and like, I have like an, my own experience with bird traps. Um, I want to say like, like over like eight years ago or something like that, I came across like a glue trap at my house and I didn't entirely know what it was. And then I like hear some sort of like fluttering outside and then I go to it and then I see a bird is stuck to it. And I tried my best to, you know, uh, I, I tried doing all that I could to make sure that the bird was like uh, safe and could get out of that trap. Um, I put like uh, oil on it to, you know, get rid of the adhesive on the bird's wings. And I tried to like wash it off with like um, some some sort of soap or anything. But like. The bird was just so it was just so traumatized by the entire experience of like being kept in like a box and like being washed by like this giant creature that it had like never been so close in contact with that its heart just gave out and then it just died. And that's something that I've just always sort of like held in my memory and I like still mourn for that bird. But with in Peter's case, he viewed it as sort of a sort of a, a egotistical way of achieving fantasy in his own life. Um, he purposely like talked about those trappings as uh, being able to lure in some of the most unattainable yet divine creatures that caught his eye. And then once he did trap them, they were his to keep. 
and he would condition them into wanting him until evermore. And he openly admitted that to, to Tina, and he even tried playing it off where he's like, oh, well, every single person that I see or every single woman that I find, I, I want to sleep with. And it's like, that's such a egotistical thing to even imagine where, oh, well, you experience this sort of desire towards another and you view them as attainable to you because you are just that irresistible. And for Tina, she plays it off in the coded languages that Ben's mentioned earlier, where she's constantly giving in to Peter in order to secure her own uh, position in life. Because the first instance that we have with them is where Peter visits her after one of her performances, and then we get a voiceover. Oh well, should I should I engage with him? Uh, I don't really want to. He like how many times has he used this sort of thing, on, or or on anyone for that matter? But at the same time, I need a place to stay. Um, and so she sort of gives into this fantasy of his in order to secure her own well being. And so you can tell that like the unattainable figure that Tina represents, she's the you know, she plays it off as, you know, being so unknowing and so naive in regards to these sorts of things, yet she's pulling all the strings that go on behind the scenes. And she ends up, you know, being the one that Peter, you know, when he was saying, oh, well, I end up wanting to sleep with everyone, yet he doesn't. But she says, oh, well, I don't want to do that. But she ends up being the one who sleeps with well, in a figurative way, who ends up uh, getting with everyone that she desires. So they're kind of like two opposite sides of the spectrums when it comes to human sexuality. And for uh, Mickey and Chucky, they sort of are like caught in the middle somewhere where they're like drawn to these two polar opposites. You know, Chucky being drawn to Peter and mikey being drawn to tina and then we sort of see how it just all sort of fumbles once it starts getting all the more murky and one last point that um i want to make about it is that i love how peter is sort of represented as the other in the um he sort of takes on this role of being like a domineering heteronormative figure who takes what he wants yet he's ultimately denied and then he's sort of um objectified by by uh chucky who is just constantly trying to get with him and then once that once it doesn't fall into chucky's favor he sort of takes it on his own uh warped uh uh agenda to take out Tina in uh in in order to recuperate what was once lost to him. And yeah, once again for me, the narrative of like the jewels and like everything sort of falls by the wayside to me uh like three quarters into the movie and it really becomes like an emphasis 
on the psychological inner workings of like the shifting dynamics between all of the central figures. And that's that's like my biggest takeaway from it. Yeah, the it's a big red flag, you know, that that whole bird scene was a uh, uh pretty disturbing. Um but she doesn't she just brushes it off until uh it brings that one dress that is like so out of place in the movie, like with you know the style of the movie and everything. It looks like something that's kind of like kind of like a, a gothic or like horror, you know, novel. Oh yeah, the the white uh, the white dress that covers up the entirety of a uh, Tina's body. Yeah, that was a uh, that was hilarious. Um, but it also. Uh, Got me thinking about how um, Peter had always like this idea uh, in his head about like the the ideal woman, and that that he covets that idea. And um, I never really thought about it until like just now speaking about it. But like um, with a uh, with with Chucky and his brother, I forget his name, but they're after the jewel and that scene where you know it's like sitting on the I think it's a Sphinx, um, but and she's like just accurately describing this, this you know the the idea of the treasure like she's just making it up clearly but like the um the twins are like really like also like fascinated with the idea of the treasure but she she tells them flat out it's it's a myth it's, it's like never existed people like we know it's like not real um and uh yeah i never really thought to draw that parallel with the the ideal female figure for um like a uh, someone like Peter and uh, like the treasure of uh, the twins. Yeah, even um, you mentioned the idea of like the Sphinx and stuff, and that gets me thinking back to uh, like the never-ending story which was both a book as well as a movie. And in it, the idea of the Sphinx is uh, when, Atrey- when Atreyu reaches the point in his journey where he has to overcome the gaze of like these two Sphinxes who are looking directly at one another, like anyone who has come before and tries to pass before their gaze, they end up becoming like, vaporized or like just completely crushed by the vision of the sphinxes because uh with the sphinx they're able to like see beyond reality they're able to see into like the furthest recesses of like the universe and like able to behold the secrets of it and which is why they're able to face one another because no other being could you know be able to withstand their their vision and their gaze and it's funny because like chucky and mikey represent those two sphinxes from the never-ending story now that i'm thinking about it because like only those two could actually stand their own presence within one of the other and it's so fitting that in the end they're the two who ended up killing one another you know, after not seeing eye to eye, it it just seems so fitting for them.
I thought it was funny the way <laughs> the way they died. It was so mundane, right? Yeah, like it just seemed like like I thought it was a joke. I thought they were both playing a joke on each other and like acting dead. And then they were going to like pop up and be like, ah, oh, fuck, I guess we're stuck with each other. But then I was like, okay, they cut. I guess they're dead. <laughs> like, I feel like I could even see one of their heads like moving. So I was like, okay, they're playing a joke. I that scene I didn't even know or I didn't even think they died. I thought they just like passed out or something. But I don't know. It's 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 pretty ambiguous. Thing, but it, you know, they for sure were trying to kill each other. So I was like, okay, like (laughs) they must be dead if they didn't show us that someone's alive. Yeah, and you also know. I have a question. This is just random. I wrote this down earlier. Do you guys? Do any of you, especially you, Ben, since you've seen it a few times, do you have a theory on why every single game that they play, like whether it's I think I, the only ones I know are roulette and chess. They're both mini games. They're both like super shrunken, shrunken down. Love that detail. Such so random, but I noticed it because like that was one of the first shots I loved. I think in the first sweet sequence. Like it does like a extreme close up of their mini roulette table or whatever, and then it like segues to the title of the movie, and then there's like the mini chess chess set or whatever later in the movie. Anybody have a random theory on why there's mini uh mini games? Uh. I took it as like a the Vegas the Vegas connection to like the magicians. I always think of when I think of magicians like that, I think of Vegas, and they have these little portable like contraptions to recreate Vegas. But then chess does it fit into that? But the chess game, I thought of like a like a kind of a, a mice and men type, like their desires or their like their their chasing of wealth is like a gamble and they have such small little like recreations to make themselves feel big where it's like the whole thing feels like it's a like over the top like inferior like representation of their inferiority and their pursuits but yeah it's like a small scale insignificant like they are in the grander scheme of yeah things. and yeah it seems like something out of a book i did love that a lot Yeah, I feel like um, the entire the entire incorporation of like the miniature poker game, as well as like the other ones, the other iterations of it, it's sort of like a a minimi- a minimizing effect that it has on American culture, as well as how ingrained it could be inside of our own subconscious in a way like we constantly are like thinking back to like these games of like chances of like trying our luck and it's very it's almost like a form of iconography in a way and i feel like that's where this 
This movie has yet another parallel to possibly in Michigan and that it resorts to avant-garde symbolism where it doesn't necessarily adhere to uh, contextual explanations of the imagery, but more so, but more so de- uh, depends upon the implications that you feel from watching like this sort of imagery play out on screen. It's a sort of like dreamlike explanation of what's going on on screen. Like they're sort of leaving it up to chance. And both of these two films that were that we've discussed have made me have like a newfound appreciation and respect for this type of filmmaking and this type of approach to art in in a whole because it it almost feels like very primal in a sense to where it's like these symbols that have been ingrained in our culture like encoded in our dna and impressed upon us from birth it's it's almost like it it feels near universal and I don't know. It it has like it it goes beyond words cuz to me like words are just so flimsy and they're so frail and we try our best to like fill them with meaning yet to me like imagery has always been the far superior form of communication. And to me like that whole like miniature poker game represents so much of like just rep just putting everything up to chance. It's interesting that you uh, mentioned about the iconography that is like present, present throughout the film with the, um, you know, the Egyptians and then they kind of turn themselves into with, you know, the photos of themselves. But um, this is the last, I believe this is the last feature narrative feature that um, Mark Rappaport uh, did. Um after this, he he did strictly kind of like these documentaries on film, and um, he did a documentary on. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, cool. Sick. I'm just curious. Um, the he did a documentary on Rock Hudson called Rock Hudson's Home Movies, which is a um, about the actor Rock Hudson, who's um, a closeted uh, gay actor who played like all these like straight men roles in in Hollywood films. Um, like the tough guy in Hollywood films and things like that. And uh, Oh, I think you cut out Ben's. We'll hold on on that thought. Yeah, Yeah, it's no worries. Just take your time.
Oh. oh yeah, now we can hear you. So uh you were talking about Rock Hudson. Oh yeah, like how like he played for decades, he played like this like straight man who like uh was like this tough guy in films and but like he was a closeted homosexual. But like in his films, uh, Mark Rappaport like did this documentary on him. It's like it's an avant garde documentary, by the way. But like he always talks about like how there's like like underneath that you could read into like his like how he brought his like personal life into like some of the characters and it's like it's pretty interesting how like a whole like generation of people can see like something in front of them and not kind of like understand like what's underneath at the same time, which is like uh pretty interesting that he like went from this film to into like those documentaries kind of like dissecting like old Hollywood films. I think it's so interesting how this was his last narrative film and then how he transitioned into more realistic forms of uh, of art. And from what I understand, he also does a bunch of uh, film essays on Fandor now. Uh, I recently watched some of them and he has such a deep appreciation for film history as a whole and he has like a wealth of knowledge when it comes to that medium when it comes to the medium as well and it's very clear to me that mark rapaport has like a very deep and profound understanding of like the human psyche underneath the the layers of web when it comes to cinema as a whole and I feel like for any other sort of like artist who has like that sort of uh, inclination for commentary on uh, the on the mindset of uh, the culture at, at large, I feel like um, he's he's definitely very underappreciated, and I'm glad that you were able to recommend this film to us, Benz, because it's just, you know, hopefully more people can, like, find a means to securing a way to watching this movie as well as being to some of other, uh, some of the other works of Mark Rappaport and who who else uh, he was involved with. Um, I think just the fact that providing attention to some of these other uh, obscure artists. It's very important for uh, history as a whole, whether it's with cinema art or in terms of just uh, recountings of events or anything like that. I feel like that, like ultimately truth is at the essence of it all. And um, thank you for recommending this. Oh yeah, it's a, actually to be honest, like I've seen a lot of rap report. Don't really like his narrative features, but this one kind of stood out to me. Um, and then his his documentaries are like really excellent. He did one on uh, Gene Seberg, who was um, the woman in uh, uh, Godard's uh, Breathless. Breathless. Yeah, I think uh, Kristen Stewart actually played her uh, in a biopic too, which I have yet to see. With that said, do we have any other sort of closing thoughts on the film before we wrap it up? 
Uh, I just say thanks, Ben's, for coming on and giving us these sweet suggestions. I really enjoyed possibly Michigan. Um, I can't wait to show that. That's like that's like a video, like I don't know, something you see that just, especially since it's just like so short that like I can't, I just can't wait to show it to a bunch of my friends and stuff, like a bunch of my homies. Like I know, I know a lot of people who will like appreciate that or just like enjoy the experience of watching it. <laughs> um, and then uh, yeah, with imposters too. I there were still aspects. Of it, I enjoyed, and I enjoyed the conversation of it, and uh, yeah, just uh, thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a, a, a really uh, interesting night. Yes, thank you, Ben's, for coming on, and I know I would love to have you back episodes anytime, and. Um, for anyone who is still listening, feel free to check out Possibly in Michigan on YouTube. It is free to watch. Uh, Imposters is another story. However you secure that is on. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, as always, thank you for listening and take care of yourselves. Um, if you want to follow us on Apple Podcasts, you're more than welcome to, as well as Spotify, Google However you listen to us, um, Instagram is Layfilm Podcast. Uh, other than that, stay safe out there and uh, keep watching movies. I'm late. I've got an appointment. I got my shit together. And now it's time for you to hear. Stop your changing with the weather and get your ass together, get your ass together. I know what's best for me And if you're looking at me I'm so nice